ready? Once again, a big thank you to Wild Earth Australia for their continuous support and being a company that really believes in the adventurous lifestyle. Now, if you need any gear for your next adventure, running, hiking, camping, climbing, survival, you name it, they have it. So go to the website wildearth.com.au and put in the 10% discount code Diaries of the Wild Ones, all one word, capital letters. Free shipping Australia-wide, they even ship internationally. What an experience and honour this was. Andy Mack is one of the originals, one of the pioneers of the way of life that I myself live today. Andy Mack was a professional surfer in the 60s, 70s and 80s, travelling around the world doing what he loved and that was to surf. I grew up listening to his voice on the morning surf report on our local radio station CFM on the Gold Coast and I've been close family friends of his for years now and I'm absolutely honoured to sit down with Andrew and hear about the lifestyle that these guys lived. He has told me so many interesting stories about all the greats, all the legends, Michael Peterson, Rabbit Bartholomew, Nat Young, Mark Richards, all these guys I grew up idolising. They are the originals. They paved the way for this sport of surfing that is recognized today worldwide, that so many of us now live this lifestyle that they started. Go on to my website, diariesofthewildones.com, or my Instagram, Aaron under, underscore Shanks, or just go on to YouTube and just, just YouTube Andrew McKinnon, and there is a surf film there they did in Mauritius in 1977 that will absolutely blow your mind and really paint a picture of the life that Andy lived. Enjoy this episode, guys. I just found it so interesting. Um, so it's just pretty funny. So. so you still work at CFM now? Oh, well, sometimes? yeah, I'm, I'm like the the part time floater on the on the local radio. Well, yeah, I, I just pressed record, but that's a great place to start, Andy, because um, because your voice paved the way for my young surfing day. So basically, we never had we never had boy weather, we never had coastal watch, we never had swell swell net, all these platforms to check the surf. It was always your voice. So your voice in the morning and in the afternoon was always the voice of the surf. And so um, how long did you do that for, for? So you were the surf reporter on on the Gold Coast for CFM for how long? Yeah, from 1989. I mean, it's funny how you say the voice of the surf because um, this friend of my mum's, um, you know, Kevin, um, Kevin uh, was uh, number one Swan supporter and, you know, he's from Brisbane and, he was from a shoe emporium, and he was a really classic character, wasn't he? Yeah. And he said, you should be like Johnny Tap, voice of the turf. You can call yourself Andy Mack, voice of the surf. Oh, is that where it came from? Andrew McKinnon, Andy Mack? Yes. Um, a friend of mine, actually, from Phillip Island, came up with the nickname Andy Mack. Um, Neil Luke is a state kneeboard champion. Um, really well-known kneeboard rider and, you know, shapes kneeboards and he lives um, in Nicaragua now. But he came up with the nickname Andy Mack because prior to that, 
I was just called Andrew McKinnon. When I was at TSS, they called me Sam. So was that in your school, in your high school? In in the primary school days, um, when I was at boarding school at the Southport School, they called me Sam because my full name is Stuart Andrew McKinnon, S-A-M. Oh, right. So Sam was okay until they started calling me Surfy Sam. Oh, and I hated that. I really detested that. I hated that word surfy. Yeah. Um, so Surfy Sam was like, to me, was like a put down. So once I left TSS and went to Miami High School, there's no more Sam. Don't call me Sam. So, and then. So it's Andrew McKinnon again. So it became Andrew McKinnon. And, um, and then it wasn't until I went to Phillip Island in 1974 and I met Neil Luke and he came up with a nickname. And then by about, oh, when was it? Not in 76. My mum was living in King's Cross, okay? In Sydney. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, with Kevin, Kevin Crosby from Crosby Shoes. This guy had been a giant in his day, but, you know, they'd both seen better days, but they were trying to save, you know, people in King's Cross. <laughs> My mum worked in a soup kitchen and she was trying to look after tenants' rights she had a whole lot of people living with her. They were living in an old governor's mansion um, in the middle of King's Cross that actually had a brothel to one side of it. And she actually helped the girls. She had um, an Aboriginal guy staying there. He, uh, she had a defrocked priest that was staying there, Kevin, and an old waterfront worker called Teddy. You know, what an eclectic yeah. bunch of people that had all dysfunctioned. And my mum was one of those sort of people she really loved helping people because, you know, she grew up in Malvern in Melbourne and she'd grown up during World War Two. She'd grown up in really hard times. But she could converse with people, whether they be young, old or indifferent. You know, she was just one of those sort of universal type people. So, you know, Kevin was the guy that went... Call yourself Andy Mac, voice of the surf. You know, you used to speak like that. Yes, son, that's how you'll do it. And I thought, okay, so what happened next was that Nat Young was doing a surf report for Double J. It was called Double J. So Nat, Back, Nat Young, the, he was, what the, year did he win a world title? Well, Nat Young won uh, his first world title in 1966. Yeah. It was just huge. And then uh, later on in the 80s, he came back on a longboard and won multiple world titles. Um, but at that particular time in 76, Nat had sort of stepped out of the, the contest scene and, you know, th this is at the height of Michael Peterson and Sean Thompson and Rabbit, Mark Richards is ready to hit the scene. So Nat was sort of out of the picture a little bit, but he was still a big name yeah. and, it went, and still incredibly inspiring and he was making surfboards in Sydney and... I'd gone down to live in Sydney because um, I used to love going to the northern beaches because of the left-handers at Avalon and at Whale Beach being goofy foot. And I'd known that from the contest. And he said, look, I'm going away. Can you fill in and do a surf report for me at the ABC at Double J? And I went, yeah, no worries. And at that particular time, I, was, I had a restaurant at Avalon it was a vegetarian takeaway called Don't Panic, It's Organic. <laughs> well, you owned it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, what a crazy thing to do. Um, you know, I should have really been out there surfing and doing everything, but I'd already had this amazing life up until then, and I felt like that I had to 
be responsible and do something with my life. I actually wanted to start a surf shop. Yeah. But the only shop that was available was a pizza shop in Avalon and it had all the fridges, it had all the gas stoves, you know, it had the makings for a vegetarian takeaway. So I went, here we go. And once again, it was my mate Neil Luke who'd come up with this saying, don't panic, it's organic. And just recently, I saw that written on a container on Kauai of all places where, you know, it said, don't panic, it's organic foods. And I thought, well, we're the guys that started that in 76. So, you know, Nat walked into the restaurant and uh, he said, I'm going away. Can you fill in and do the surf report? I went, yeah, sure, piece of cake, you know, (laughs) a piece of cake. And he says, oh, I just so happen to have a cake we can celebrate. And, of course, that cake was a loaded cake, as you can imagine. Right? You're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding. So, yeah, sure, we all had a slice of Nat's cake and uh, and then um, what happens next is that uh, ABC ring me and say, all right, are you ready to do these reports? Six o'clock in the morning? I said, sure. And I was living at Whale Beach on the southern side of Whale Beach where you could look out the bedroom window straight across to the wedge. You know, the wedge is this famous left-hand peak. And um, so I could basically see what was happening with the surf. Yeah, I knew what the tides were doing. I knew if the swell was up or down. Um, I knew what wind direction it was. And I had enough knowledge to really cater for the Sydney northern beaches at least. You know. So how did they do the surf report? Via the phone? Via the phone. Yeah. yeah. So if you were out checking the surf somewhere, would you have to go to a pay phone? No, I just um, – oh, yeah, sometimes I would. Yeah, yeah, sometimes I would go to a pay phone yeah. because there's no mobile phones. Yeah. But this one was really easy. Because I was doing it from the bedroom window. Yeah. But I could see what was going on. I'm right there. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I didn't even have to get in the car and drive anywhere. I knew what was going on. And, you know, each day I'd go out surfing somewhere anyway or I'd get reports and, you know, I'm working in the restaurant, obviously, but yeah. people would say, oh, you should have sent Avalon today. Oh, Narrabeen was incredible. Oh, this is Bank at Warrywood. Oh, those guys surfing Ferry Bow. You, you know, I, I knew enough about surfing conditions yeah. um, over the years of the northern beaches that I could, you know, confidently call what was going on. And then, of course, they wanted a character too. So, wow, I'd get away with all sorts of stuff, you know, like, go, oh, there's so shit today. You may as well just have a few billies and go to sleep. You know, that sort of thing. I mean, you just yeah. couldn't say that now. But yeah. they loved that, all the rebel stuff. And... um and then uh, there's a bit of a long story. Um, Nat didn't quite get to come back to, you know, doing the gig because he had other things going on. There's a big long story attached to that, but I won't go into that. So I got left with the gig and suddenly here I am, you know, Andy Mack, Voice of the Surf. They, they were comparing me to Rex Mossop, who was called the Moose in Sydney. He was a football commentator. And they had ads, you know, saying we've got our own Rex Mossop. It's called Andy Mac, Voice of the Surf. And so, it was, you know, this was 76 and then uh, 77. And then I left Sydney and I went up north and I started to, I went to college, you know, in Lismore um, at the Northern Rivers College of Advanced Education. And I sort of knew that if I wanted to work in the media, I had to learn a technique. I had to get the technique down. It's one thing, you know, talking about something that you love and that you know, but if you're going to go on TV, you really need to know how to present. And so, you know, I did that course 
and it really helped. Um, you know, I only did like two years part-time diploma of visual arts. And then I got a couple of gigs in the Lismore area, NRTV, uh, 2LM Radio. I was doing the self-report for them there. Um, I was writing in the Northern Star. So I had a writing gig, a radio yeah. gig, and a TV gig, all, all part-time. And not really paying full-time, but it was giving me experience. And then I realised that if I really wanted to go somewhere, I needed to go back to Sydney and see if I could get a career there. It's a land of opportunity down there. Absolutely. And so there was nothing lined up. There was no offers. I just thought, I'll go to Sydney and I'm going to find a gig. And I was doing commentary at a surfing event at Maroubra and um, Mark Warren, who was an old friend of mine who worked in both radio and TV, you know, he was the... um, Triple M surf reporter in Sydney, and he was also doing Wide World of Sport. And he thought, oh, God, you you can do this job. You can fill in for me. Can you um, back me up when I go away? I went, no worries. I've done the same for Nat. I can do that for you. And, of course, Doug Mulray was the morning announcer uh, on Triple M. You know, they called him the Reverend. He, he was easily by the... The best breakfast morning announcer I've ever heard, even to this day. No one even comes close to Doug Mulray. And he was cutting and he was really sarcastic and he could just tear you up. So I, <laughs> the funny thing was, when I had been doing the Double J reports in the morning, he was the morning announcer and he would have me for toast every morning. It was terrible. I got carved up. But in the afternoon, there was a guy called Russell who was really nice. And, you know, I'd get my confidence back in the afternoon with Russell. But so coming back in 85, I was ready for the Reverend, you know, yeah. and I got in before he even started on me. I go, come on, come on, Mull. I'd call him Mull. Come on, Mull, get off the Mull, you know, <laughs> keep it real, you know. And I, so I'd go on the defense straight away. And I learned this sort of technique where, you know, get in first, otherwise he's going to carve you up. And this and is all on live radio. This is on live radio, and sometimes he played the bagpipes. I'm going, well, if you don't want a surf report, I'm not going to do one. I'll just hang up. You know, I'm You're not going to stand me. by with the bagpipes in the background. People want to hear what's going on out there, Doug. Yeah. What are you, what are you on today? You know, oh, it's incredible. And, and poor old Murray at the time was going through a marriage breakup, and he fell in love with his producer, Miss Lizzie, who was incredibly talented. And and he actually professed one morning, oh, come on, I'm going through a really hard time at the moment. And I thought, oh, I've, I've hit a raw nerve. I said, oh, sorry, Doug. I said, but let's just stick to the surf, you know. And then him and I had this incredible banter. And that really got me going where I felt like I'm on the same level as this guy. I can stay pace with him. And he's not going to make me sound like a fool, in other words. So, so that was an incredible experience. And then... Just when it looked like I could stay there forever, I thought I don't want to get stuck in Sydney. I love the northern I love the North Coast. I love the Gold Coast. You know, I'd lived in Boron Bay. I'd lived on the Gold Coast. They were my homes. You know, as much as I love Sydney as a city and as much as I love the northern beaches to go surfing, you know, my heart was up north. And so I said to Mark Warren, I'm sorry, but I'm going to go back up north. You're crazy. You'd have the surf report and then you might be able to do TV. You might be able to, you know, I had a magazine offer as well to be an editor. and But I just didn't want to get stuck in the big smoke, did I? Yeah. So I came back up here. Um, well, you know, I came back up to Byron and I started doing the same thing again, you know. Um, 
and then the longboards came back in. And that was amazing for me because I'd, I'd started surfing on a longboard in 1962. Um, Which we'll get into that in a second. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll come back to that. But the media thing was after doing all of that, then I came back to Byron. I realized that Byron didn't have anything to offer me. Um, so I was actually selling advertising for the Northern Star newspaper by this stage, which was a full-time job. Yeah. And I was doing really great. I was <laughs> I'd just get on the phone and I'd just talk anyone into anything to, to advertise. You've got to be in this issue. You know, oh, you've got to be in the feature. This will sell you heaps, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'd won a world longboard title, so that really helped. So I had a bit of a profile in the area. And then I was looking through the Gold Coast Bulletin and I saw ads for a new radio station that was going to start called CFM. And I'm looking through it all. And, of course, it, it doesn't advertise a surf reporter. So I rang them up and I said, uh, look, by the way, I've worked for Triple M. I've worked for Double J. Do you need a surf reporter? And they said, oh, God, we hadn't even thought of that. I thought, what? On the Gold Coast, you've got to have a surf reporter. And I said, I can give you the best surf report in the world. And they said, oh, okay, that's good because we don't want to hire anyone that's actually worked on the Gold Coast, anyone that was well-known to the listeners, the local listeners. They were only hiring people that were that had never worked on the Gold Coast before. Why is that, just to bring in fresh blood? Fresh blood, fresh voices, fresh personalities, a whole fresh thing, fresh yeah. team, yeah. And I went, well, that's me. I grew up on the Gold Coast, but I never worked here, but I've worked everywhere else. So I got a Guernsey straight up. Oh, that was amazing. And then it was funny, like the first couple of weeks, I, I got a bit nervy because I realised a lot of people were wondering, oh, what's it going to be like? And CFM was so full on, you know, as you said, there were reports in the morning, lunch and afternoon. It was full on, you know, seven days a week too. Yeah. So I was on show and I, I had to perform. And at first I was a little bit nervy and I shouldn't have been. And the program director, Steve Hunt, said, okay, I heard you in Sydney. I heard you in Mulray. We want you to be like that, not like a bank teller doing the report. We want you to be lively and be controversial. I said, oh, really? And he says, yeah. And I went, no worries. So then I just got on and just went, you, you know. got to be yourself. Got to be myself. You know, suddenly Andy Mack, voice of the surf, came back big time. And that was my huge start. That was in 1989, which is... 30 years later and the amazing thing is and nobody even noticed it the other day with the change of media and the way things you know change and fall over and fade out and what have you cfm just dissolved into the background faded into the sunset they dropped the tag cfm now it's called 90.9 hits you're kidding me it's not 90.9 cfm anymore there's no cfm it's still called 90.9 yeah on the radio dial is radio now with like Spotify and iTunes and all these mm. other platforms to listen to music and, and podcasts um, being so huge, do you reckon radio has, like where do you reckon just general radio is going now? I think radio is still really relevant because yeah. uh, radio is sort of instant, isn't it? Um, it's not like quite like, you know, the TV and the newspaper. All right, so you're going to read the newspaper, you know, the day after the event. Um, yeah you're going to watch the TV that night maybe for the headlines. Whereas radios, they can break news too, can't they, during the yeah. day? And that's what I loved about going live, that I could actually sort of break news or I could talk about things that hadn't been talked about and, yeah. and try and get an exclusive, 
You know, that's the thing about in the media. If you can have an exclusive, you're on a winner. If you can talk about things that people haven't heard about before, it gets really interesting. And that's the hook, isn't it? And and that what that's what really drove me to, you know, come up with new information and yeah. let the locals know what was happening. But, so, you know, there's so many different mediums now, isn't there? Yeah. So, um, you know, like what we're doing here, our podcast, this is one of the, the latest new mediums. And people are really loving this because... They don't have to listen to the ads or they don't have to listen to the rest of the program. They can sit by and listen to somebody's life and what they've done and and and, and visualise, can't they? That's yeah. that's the thing. They It uh, makes them visualise about their own lives and what they've done and, and how they've done it. So, um, you know, the internet's just been the biggest thing ever. But, of course, radio's had to embrace the internet as well. Um, so... You know, all these mediums, they're all, at, at some way or another, are connected to the internet as well. But really, the internet is the new medium. Yeah. You had such a big name in surfing in the time. In that time, was surfing big? Like, as in, did did the general population know the names in surfing? Like, did that help you? Yeah. I mean, when I started in 1962, you know, that was uh, the start of the 60s and Surfing was really big, you know, in California and in Hawaii. People were aware of it. They'd seen footage of the big waves in Hawaii. Um, you know, they'd seen photos of Duke Hanamoka and seen the Duke, you know, out at Waikiki. And um, the Californians were already sort of... They'd, they'd come out here in 1956. There was a group of them and they were in the Olympics. They were in the uh, racing teams. But they could surf, and they were surfing on balsa wood boards that were, you know, really manoeuvrable and light. And we were still on the sixteen-foot skis, the plywoods. You know, um, they called them toothpicks because they were really long and narrow. Yeah. But they were cumbersome, and all you could do is just go straight to the beach. You know, as Greg Knoll called it, do the Iron Cross. You know, put the arms out to the side, parallel foot, and then straight into the beach. I mean, maybe you could cut across the wave a little bit, but you couldn't traverse. You couldn't do S-turns. And so what happened when Greg Knoll and his fellow paddlers came out for the 1956 Olympics, they went to Torquay and they did the surfing demonstration after a surfing carnival for the Lifesavers in 56. And they started... They they were actually just going for a free surf, actually. Yeah. And people were walking away and then they looked around and went, Oh my God! Look at what they're doing. You know, they're traversing all over the wave. They're going left and right, and they're cr- cross stepping too, and um, surfing all the way to the shore break, and then knee paddling back out and catch another wave. And people were hooting and hollering and thinking they'd never seen that before. So that was really the start of modern day surfing in Australia in 1956. Mind you, the Californians and the Hawaiians had been doing this since the early 50s. And so there was not not a whole lot of footage on that. I mean, the first surfing magazines didn't really come out until the late 50s. You know, the first surf movies didn't really hit until 1960, you know. So it was a relatively new sport. And it was, you know, back in those days, people weren't flying to Hawaii. They were catching the boat. They were catching, you know, the big steamers. Yeah. Is that how you heard about surfing? Like, how did you hear about Is that what inspired you to surf? Yeah, well, I, I was born in Melbourne and, um, you know, grew, grew up next to Port Phillip Bay. So 
there's no surf in Port Phillip Bay, you know, unless you get a wind swell. Yeah. Uh, but it's not, you know, there's no ocean swell. So um, I, I, I certainly wasn't aware of it. I, I think I was about seven when we left uh, Melbourne and we came to the Gold Coast and the old man had been up here because he'd been at, um, training at Canungra during World War Two. So he was aware of the Gold Coast and a lot of, um, you know, the military would have their R&R on the Gold Coast. That's how a lot of people were aware of the Gold Coast, both Australians and Americans, you know. They'd come here for R&R. And, you know, where Kira Surf was, there was a big R&R camp there at TSS, the Southwood School. There was an R&R camp there as well. So, um, so when we came up and I saw the ocean, I went, oh, my God, look at this. It just looked like every day was 20 to 30 feet. It was huge, and he bought a block of land right on the beach at Mermaid. And uh, while, we, while he was building the house, we stayed in the Lennons Hotel. It was the only hotel really on the Gold Coast. It was a six-story hotel. I mean, there was the Surface Paradise Hotel, but it was only one level, or two levels at the most. Here was Lennons, a six-story hotel in the middle of a sand spit, basically. There was nothing else around. And we were staying there. The old man was retired. He was a bookstore uh, news agent and he loved his books and magazines. And so he got me subscriptions to the early surf magazines like Surfer. Surfer was the first magazine. And then Surfing World came out in Australia and there was Surfing. But the Surfer magazine was the first one. That was a big one. And by having a subscription in those days, you'd actually get the magazine a month earlier before it actually hit the news agency stand. And so I was already reading all about it and then living on the beach at Mermaid, watching these colossal waves. And the family next door, they were like out of a Gidget Goes to Mermaid Beach movie. You know, yeah. they were all surfing and they, were, they had these giant boards between nine and ten foot long with the most radical looking fins. And they'd go out and they'd have colossal wipeouts and, you know, surf from way out the back and lose their boards and have to swim to the beach and... I'd just be watching all of this going, thinking this is what's involved. If I want to go surfing, I've got to be prepared to take on whatever. And the old man said, don't worry, son, you'll get out there one day. And it was just, you know, really just a matter of time before I did. But, you know, the old man got sick and then I went to boarding school. Uh, but then I I had a, a bunch of mates at boarding school that were also surfers. I mean, most of the kids at boarding school were all from the country, but the few surfers were there. We really bonded. Was the surfing culture growing fast? Like, was really, the surfing culture big? Yeah, really, really fast. So, sort of, what what happened next that really sort of kicked it on was, um, you know, at Makaha they had this famous international event. Peru actually had a big wave invitational as well, and you know, a guy called Bob Pike from DY had won a big wave event there in 1960, and. I thought, wow, you know, you saw photos of this. And then Bob Pike went to Hawaii and he was surfing pipeline on Waimea Bay. He was really Australia's first big wave rider, like successful big wave rider with documentation. And um, the Makaha International was sort of like before the world titles and everything, that, that was the number one international event. So I was sort of aware of that from watching the Surfer magazine. And, and then we had our own local hero, Trevor Elms, who was this incredible, fearless, big wave rider 
he'd make his own boards. He was a carpenter. And he got in the semifinals of the Makara International. So he surfed next door with his surfing family. And he was like the number one kingpin, you know. So that was an incredible influence for me at the time to see that one of the guys that actually got to Hawaii and, you know, went in this event and made it and surfed Wyomere Bay and Pipeline and everything. And I thought, God, I really want to do this. And, and so by 1964... Then Midget Farrelly won the first world title in Manly. So that was huge for Australia that Farrelly had beaten both Mike Doyle from California and Joe Cabell from Hawaii, you know. Um, you know, Midget had actually won the Makara International in 63. So he was on the way. Yeah. But to win the world title was just a huge thing. I mean, there were nearly 60,000 people on the beach at Manly in 1964 to wow. watch that event. So this is when surfing had really exploded. Yeah. You know, but there was all these other conflicts in, in the background. The Surf Life Saving Movement were getting a little bit guarded on what's going on here because they were losing members to surfing. And the surfers were breaking away from the Surf Life Saving Movement to just go surfing. They, they didn't yeah. want to be involved with the surf clubs anymore. So then, you know, the surf club movement, you know, of course we call them clubbies, they tried to. Um, they, they they tried to formalise the the shape of boards and fins for safety. They called it for safety. So you you had to have a, a set sort of shape of a surfboard and a fin, and then it had to be registered and all of that. You're kidding me. They tried to register surfboards. They tried to register surfboard, and they actually did. And there was decals, there was stickers for registration, but in the end, surfers just didn't go with it at all, and they opposed it. And this was like the giant breakaway then from surfboard riding to surf life saving and um, they had to just abandon that. It was really big on the northern beaches of Sydney and the south side of Sydney but in the end they had to abandon that because it was so unpopular and but it really set the um, you know the line in the sand between surfboard riding and surf life saving. So suddenly we were, you know, anti the clubbies, and the clubbies were anti the surfies. You know, yeah. so they clubbies like anti establishment, anti establishment. Like... And then you had the rockers that came in over the top, you know, from the western suburbs or wherever they came from, you know, and they'd come down the beach and try and create some grief. And you know, the rockers and the widgies, their girlfriends were called widgies. So, what you are know, the rockers? The rockers were like. Um, they, they were dressed in leathers and brushed back hair like Elvis. Like kind know. of Mad Max kind of style? Yeah, or like, like... yeah like, like Mad Max, but a bit more like Elvis, you know, in his day when he wore leathers and yeah. uh, the brushed back hair style and, you know, rockabilly. Like, like, oh, okay, yeah, like, yeah, I know exactly. The rockers were like out of the rockabilly culture. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't fit in the sand at all, did they? Like, you know, with their black shoes and their black pants and their leather jackets and brushed back Brill cream hair, you know, they'd use this cream called Brill cream, it was called. Um, and, and what did general society look at the time in the mid-60s? What were they looking at the surf culture like? Was it just a bunch oh, of like beatniks? Th- oh, it was like a threat, you know. Yeah. Um, it was definitely a threat. People were thinking... Because it was so left-wing? Well, it was so, so alternate, alternate, you yeah. know. I mean, you know, I like the left-wing's really political for me. Yeah. Um, but... The surfers had created their own subculture. Yeah. That, that's what had happened. And so they were 
turning away from the establishment and became anti-establishment. Now, you could call that left-wing if you wanted, but at the time, this whole anti-establishment thing was growing because of the counterculture and the opposition to Vietnam, and there were demonstrations from Paris to California to all over the world, London, and in Australia. There was this giant protest movement going on as well as the surfing is going through this amazing change. Um, and the, you know, the printer's just kicking in over there, but that's okay. Continue. Yeah, yeah. The printer's sort of just trying to um, punctuate that uh, comment that this whole protest movement was just not about politics; it was about life in general. Yeah. It was like you know what I was talking to you about before that we didn't have to accept authority on on authority alone, the government or the laws could be challenged. Yeah. So everything is being challenged. But surfing, that we just walked away from it all. Yeah. It, it was an escape, and it was the perfect escape. You could, like Mickey Dora said, you could just paddle out, there goes the mortgage, you know. Yeah. There goes the wife, there goes the family, there goes anything that matters. Once you're out there in the ocean catching waves, that's all that matters. And so the addiction of surfing to get away from the rest of the monotony of the world was so strong and it was such a powerful influence and, you know, just going in the ocean, whether you surf or not, can make you feel like a new person. So, um, And then, of course, surfing had its own fashion and its own culture. But when the counterculture thing hit, you know, it had gone from the Beach Boys culture to the Jimi Hendrix culture. So it really dramatically changed. And then at the same time, the boards went from long boards down to short boards. From, you know, 1967, when Bob McTavish came up with a fantastic plastic machine, Australian boards were already down to eight feet. We were actually in front of the Californians. They were still on nine-foot boards. And then, you know, 69, they were down to like, you know, seven-foot boards. And then by 1970, they were under six feet. It happened so quickly. And it suited me a treat because, you know, I was just a little guy and I'd grown up riding longboards and they were always really cumbersome and hard to ride, whereas riding a shortboard was everything I wanted to be able to do in surfing. And so that, that freedom of expression just got exemplified so much more in surfing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And this, is, this created uh, people like Michael Peterson, Rabbit Bartholomew, which are, which are guys that you competed against. Which is guys that I competed against and grew up with. And um, so we're all on that wave, you know, uh, having learned how to surf on a longboard and suddenly we're on shortboards. And suddenly we could, as um, Mark Richards would coin, you know, rip, tear and lacerate. But I, I still like sort of some of the old style. I, and I sort of missed some of that too, you know. I miss the... the the soul and the style of, of the 60s and, yeah. you know, the the new shortboard thing was good, but if it looked a bit frantic and, and, and it wasn't flowing, I, I still like to be able to have that flow of the 60s but still have the dy- the new dynamic of a shortboard of the 70s. So what did, what did you compete on when you started competing, a shortboard or a mail? Yeah, or a I, board? I, yeah I, well... Like I said, back in 62, they were all riding between 9 and 10-foot boards. And um, my first board, I was 9-foot, but I couldn't even get it down to the beach. It was so heavy. And 
it, it was actually made of epoxy foam. I wasn't uh, quite aware of that. It was made of epoxy material, sorry. And um, it had this giant chunk out of the nose. So we tried to fix it up with foam and fiberglass. And the hole just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I realized, oh, that's styrofoam. Or somebody said, that's not, you know, the the real foam. That's called styrofoam. And it won't take the foam and it won't take the fiberglass and resin. And then I said to my mum, well, the board's too big anyway. I need to get a smaller board. So I managed to get this cut-down board that was an eight-foot board. And ironically, it had half a balsa nose, round nose, and the rest of it was foam and fiberglass. But it was eight feet. So it was easier to surf for me. and uh, But it still had a round nose, so I could nose ride on it. And so, you know, I rode boards like that right up until about 68. And by the end of 68, I think I was down to a board that was about 7 foot 9, but it had a pulled-in nose and a pulled-in tail. And suddenly, you know, the whole surfboard shape and everything had changed. So... Um, when Dick Van Strolen arrived, arrived on the Gold Coast in about 1969, he was designing boards for, you know, more high-performance waves for tubes and like Acura and Burley. And, you know, we'd, in 1970, we were on these funny sort of, um, I called them stubby boards. They're almost like knee boards, like the board that my, uh, morning, uh, that sorry Michael Peterson was riding in Morning of the Earth. I mean, he absolutely ripped on that board. And I'd had a board similar to that too, like a twin fin. Um, but Van Strollen was into these sleek pintails and boards that could actually go fast and they could ride inside the tube. And that that was a really big influence in the 70s. So suddenly, you know, the tube riding thing was really, that that was the peak. That That's what we were looking at. Up until that stage, you know, there was all sorts of different styles of surfing did you, did you ever even look at the the barrel at the tube riding? Was was that a thing? Was it? How did that even come about? Someone like wondering what it's like to be inside that, or wondering yeah. what it's like to be able to. Yeah, well, I I think for me, I, I was always aware of it, but I was a little bit scared of it as well. Yeah. And you know, in the old days, you know, you put your head down and hope to get through the barrel. But I remember reading an interview with Michael uh, with actually Rabbit. Rabbit said, oh, no, I keep my eyes open so I can see where I'm going. And I thought, God, that makes so much sense, you know. And see, because I was on my backhand living on the Gold Coast on the point breaks, I didn't really get to sort of surf in the barrel like later on how, you know, Neil Purchase Jr. and China and, you know, Oki and all those guys could do the rail grabs. They could do the pig dogs, you know. Yeah. Um, even though Peter Druin could do it, Peter Druin could do everything. He he was incredible. He was our first hero. But um, then I started switch footing, and then realised, oh God, I can get on the barrel this way. And like I said, in the seventies, then to me, you know, it was all about tube riding and how deep you could get inside the wave. And then suddenly, well, I had my eyes open, and I couldn't wait to pull in behind a big long section, even if it was a foam ball too, you know to try and get through and you know before the leg ropes too you know yeah. you had all of that and obviously when when the leg ropes came in that helped people to be even better in the tube because they knew that if they blew it they didn't have to swim to the beach but. yeah so what, what was that what was it like being on the gold coast being a great surfer with all these icons and surfing these points, like what were the crowds like this is like the ultimate mm. dream the ultimate question it's like you've lived this life that 
all of us can only dream about. Sometimes it's actually kind of funny because sometimes I dream about if you could have any superpower, what would it be? And I often think it would be night vision. So then you can surf these amazing, these iconic waves mm. to yourself. And I, and I look back on guys that paved the wave like you guys mm. and wonder what that was like. Oh, it was incredible. But, you know, growing up at Mermaid, we got incredible beach breaks out there. And um, by the time I finally got out of boarding school and I started at Miami High School, there was only a handful of people surfing there. That whole other era from the early 60s, they'd all gone. They'd either got married, they went to Vietnam, or maybe, you know, they just stopped surfing. And suddenly it was like one day I just walked out to the beach and I'm looking around, there's no one around, there's perfect waves out there. I mean, it's just me now, you know. So I'd, I'd just, you know, every morning would be normally offshore and and I'd surf all sorts of conditions too at, at Mermaid, which is really, for a lot of people that grew up on the beach breaks, it made them more solid surfers, I believe. Yeah. But, you know, the crew at Coolangatta, like Michael and PT and Rabbit, they were surfing the point breaks all the time. So they were defining their tube riding ability. And I, and I saw that firsthand with Michael Peterson. I could see how he could back to all these waves. And it really inspired me, you know, to see how he could surf on the points. And, you know, once the wind blew suddenly at Mermaid, we'd head down to the points. And, um, you know, I had so many magic sessions at Burley, Crumman Alley, Kira Point, Snapper, Greenmount. You know, before the Superbank... They were almost like separate breaks, you know. There was Snapper Rocks, then there was Rainbow Bay, then there was Greenmount. And then Coolangatta would get these incredible breaks as well. And then Kira Point, um, up the beach in the middle of the beach, the northern end of the beach. There'd be all these other spots where, you know, in those days it did get crowded too. I mean, you know, Kira in the early 60s, I think I got a, a learn to surf lesson there. And... Um, Johnny Charlton Sr., you know, he had all these higher boards and uh, there was this magic board. They all had numbers on them, right? And there was this one magic board called 17 and it was the one that Michael Peterson and Robert Bartholomew would fight over. Everybody wanted this board because it was a bit shorter than the others and a yeah. bit lighter. And um, so, you know, the surf culture was really, really strong in in the 60s. So th there was still a lot of people surfing. But... Um, you know, by the 70s, it sort of narrowed out again. Uh, but then, you know, when the Morning of the Earth movie hit and then that brought on a whole new generation, then people started coming back. So, you know, by the 80s, the Gold Coast was pretty crowded and then we'd become a bit more crowded in the 90s and now it's really, you Yeah, know, now it's really crowded. Well, now it's sort of like overcrowded. What yeah. was it like at Kira, like back in the 70s, to surf Kira in a swell? Was there many people that could actually tube ride or yeah. like when it actually got to good barrels was there yeah definitely um peter drone could you know he, he was amazing and he was from the northern beaches drone could surf anything and he'd been to hawaii you know he had two australian junior titles and then you know he made the transition from long boards to short boards he um he just reveled in cura and you know rabbit and i saw him do one of the first floaters we've ever seen out of the lip you know um and, you know, surfing behind the foam ball and all of that. And, you know, Michael Peterson was probably the first guy that was really tube riding out there for me. And Rabbit followed, you know, 
pretty you know not, not too far behind they were very close and pt as well all those three really started to define tube riding on the points and apart from kira they every now and then they'd come up to burley you know even though they were cool and gather base they, they would come up to burley and and show that they were you know really superior in tube riding and um so that was amazing to watch that and but even so in those days, you know, when you'd paddle out at Burley or Kira, you'd sort of know everyone and you'd say hi to everyone and everyone would be sharing waves. It wasn't, you know, it was definitely not overcrowded. Yeah, was it, were there like drop-ins? Like was there aggression in the surf back then? Like if you were in a barrel, did people know back then to not drop in on the wave? Yeah, pretty much, it... pretty much. And, um, you know, most people are aware of Michael Peterson when he'd be way back inside the barrel and people would start dropping in on him had this ear-piercing whistle <laughs> to let them know that he wasn't going to fall off. He was going to come out of the barrel. and um, But, yeah, sure, you know, sometimes yeah, people would drop in and there was that sort of a bit of a culture of, of dropping in and um, it, it didn't know, it, it wouldn't come to fights, but sometimes it would, you know. Yeah. It depends who you're dropping in on. So I mean, there's always been aggression, there's always been localism in surfing to a certain extent? Yeah, 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 there has been. And, you know, some of the, the, the big-time surfers would feel like that they could drop in. Yeah. But you, you, um, you actually were, we were talking the other day and you told me that you lived in Hawaii. Mm. What was it like there being a, a minority Australian? Was, it, was, there, was there much of a surf culture there when you were there? And was it, what, did you get much respect in the surf being an Australian? Well... When I, I'd, I'd been in Hawaii, my first trip was in 1969, which was amazing because it's one of the biggest years yet in Hawaii. And then I came back in 71. Um, I competed at Makahara International. That was really cool. Um, but then I went there in 1972 um, when, you know, I'd made the Australian team and I'd also entered into the Kauai Community College, you know, to study political science a good good reason to go and live in hawaii and go surfing um but it was a great experience and you know one of the first things that i became aware of was oh i am a minority i'm just a white howley guy here yeah i I hadn't quite noticed that in the other trips that i hadn't really sort of encountered any sort of racial tension because basically those first two trips were really hardcore trips and I didn't see... I'd heard about it, but I had, didn't see it in those trips. But in 72, I saw it firsthand. And, um, you know, I'd be walking along the road and I didn't have a car and I'd be hitchhiking and, and a truck of Hawaiians had come down the road and they'd see the howling on the side there. And they'd try and drive me off the road, you know, and yelling and screaming at me. And I thought, oh, wow you know, this really is their island, it's not my island. And that whole thing that the Hawaiians felt persecuted about, how the their heritage had been taken from them, you know, the history of the way the American military went in there to protect the sugarcane barons at the time and they revoked the Hawaiian power, they sacked the Queen and the whole thing was horrible. Um, you know, it was only Bill Clinton later on, you know, I think it was the late 90s, you know, when Clinton was still president, that he actually made an apology for what had happened there. But in 72, they were really, the Hawaiians were mad, you know. They they felt like that they'd had their land taken and they hadn't been taken. And so, you know, if they didn't like you, they would tell you so. 
if they liked you, you they would embrace you. And and um, was that was that scary? I can I can imagine that being scary, like being a young. How old were you in 1972? Well, I was 19. So yeah. being a young 19 year old surfer, someone that was like a hot shot in Australia, mm. suddenly in this foreign land mm. where you're playing to someone else's rules. Yeah, exactly right. And um, you know, we had Aboriginal friends back on the Gold Coast and. In fact, you know, the old man, he used to um, have this driver up at Surface, Charlie Emerson, had his own taxi in Cavill Avenue. And um, he used to drive the old man around, you know. And the old man liked to drink. And so, you know, he, he had good old Charlie looking after him. And so when when uh, mum and dad would go out, you know, for a big night, I'd go and stay at the Emersons, a full-on Aboriginal family living in Cavill Avenue. And I was terrified. But they were so so wonderful to me. They were, you know, they said, "Don't worry, we we won't eat you." <laughs> you know, they were really really nice, and so I became very friendly with them. And so I felt uh, I, I, there wasn't a racist bone in, in our bodies. The way we all felt, you know, yeah, the way I was brought up, and um, so I immediately understood what was going on, and then realised in Hawaii, should I am a minority here now? I I, I understand what it must feel like for the Aboriginals, you know, in Australia. And what really came home to me was one day at the college, these young Californian girls, you know, they're really cute, they're really educated, you know, very aware. And they said, oh, where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm from Australia. I said, oh, your country's really racist. And I went, really? I said, not from where I come from. I, we've got really good relations with uh, Aboriginal people. They said, oh, no, you've got this policy called the White Australia policy. I went, oh, yeah, no, that's, that's really bad. That was something that uh, Bob Menzies brought in and, um, you know, but the new guy that's coming called Gough Whitlam, he's going to get rid of that, you know. And they said, yeah, well, that's how you're perceived, that you don't, uh, you've got a White Australian policy and, and you look down and you you don't treat, you know, people equally. And I said, yeah, but Gough's, onto that and he's going to do something about it and and you know consequently he did but right there I realized wow you know we're seen as racist you know and I, I never even perceived us like that before yeah so I was really 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 um sensitive on that whole thing yeah and so I kept surfing big Honolulu Bay cannons um you know um you know, all those big wave spots on the northern end of Kauai and I had this beautiful seven foot four five string event strollant was just this magic board and I felt like I could do anything on that board. I could surf from two feet to twenty feet, you know. And one day on Sunday when I was surfing Honolulu Bay, um and Sundays was sort of a bit of a scary day because the local Hawaiians would come out and, you know, there'd been episodes of people getting bashed. But I hadn't seen it. So I'm surfing out there and it's only like four to six feet. It's a real fun day and surfing on the bowl at Honolulu and um, having, a, having a ball out there. And then the next uh, thing... Are you by yourself? Yeah, I'm by myself. I um, I was with this other guy who dropped me off and he had to go somewhere and then he said he'd come back. So, um, so I'm out there, yeah, surfing by myself. And, you know, I saw Joey Cabell out there and, and one of the young Hawaiians... Is dropped in on Joey, and I thought, oh, that that shouldn't have happened. But Joey just let it go. Joey could sort of see what was going on, and you know he's incredible. And 
<laughs> he had his um, he had his boat, you know, the schooner out in the bay there, anchored. So he wasn't too worried about it. So he went in, um, and then the next thing, this couple of Florida guys, they dropped in on the young Hawaiian kid, and I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting, and then. I'm I'm just catching waves in through the bowl and then I paddle back out through the channel and then I notice that the Hawaiians have got this guy and they're ducking him under the water and they're just bashing, bashing him senselessly and I thought, oh my God, I don't want to see this, you know, and I want to help, but what can I do? I'll just, you know, there's nothing I can do. I'll get bashed as well. And so... That guy and his friend, they ended up just paddling right around the other side of the bay to get away from the Hawaiians, and the Hawaiians took his board in. And um, so I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, I paddle by them, and they're looking at me, and I'm going, hey. Are they, are they wondering if you're one of them? Yeah, that's well? right. You know, And at that stage, I had long hair and a beard, and I'm going chuckabra, and they're just, going, oh, yeah, they're just sort of nodding at me, and I'm thinking, Maybe I'm going to go in too. I think I better go in and get out of here before, you know, something happens. So I'm standing on the beach, you know, I'm hiding behind, you know, my five-string event strolling and I'm waiting for Clancy, this guy that I was staying with, to come back and pick us up, but he's not in the car park. So the wines walk past me with this guy's board and the last one looks aside to me and then he looks at my board and he goes, I'll take that. And he grabs my board and now they've got my board and the Florida guy's board and they're heading up to their car. And I've thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do here? So think about it for a bit. And then I thought, this board's a magic board. I cannot give this board away. I'm not going to just let this board be stolen straight out of my arms yeah. like that. Did these guys know who you were at all? Did they? No idea. I had no idea who I was. So, so I walk out to the car park. They've already got my board and the Florida guy's board on top of the car and tied down, you know. So I walk up. There's like about five or six of them. And I'm guessing you're you're scared. Well, yeah, I'm scared, but I don't want to lose my board. That's yeah. my motivation. Yeah. I'm, I'm prepared to die for this board. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so I go, look, boys, it's like this. I'm not from California. Um, I'm from Australia. I'm going to your local college here, which is a great college, Um I don't mean any harm. I don't mean any disrespect. Um, I've got a lot of great Hawaiian friends. Um, but, you know, if you want to borrow my board, feel free. You can, you know, take it for a surf. But I can't just give you the board. I can't give the board away. So the littlest guy walks straight up to me and he just does this big backhander. You know, slaps you. Slaps me right in front of all of them. And I'm thinking, oh, this is like a test, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'd been through this at boarding school, you know. I knew what this sort of intimidation was like. So I just, you know, I wanted just to nail him, but I thought if I do that, then I'm, I'm dead straight up. So I just sort of take it, you know, take the slap on the, on, the, on the face, you know, and then I look at them all and I go, okay, it's like this. I know Barry Kanaipuni. I know Jerry Lopez. I know this Hawaiian, that Hawaiian, and I know Tiger Spiro. Now, Togo Spira was one of the most reverend Hawaiian figures ever, originally from Kauai, made it really big, surfing Waimea Bay in Hawaii, and I'd met him in 1969. He's an amazing Hawaiian, right? And they're all looking at me going, what? You know Lopez? You know Kanaipuni? Um, and he goes, what would you say, bro? And I said, you know, Tiger. 
I went, no, bro, no, bro. Tiger. Not tiger. Tiger. That's the pronunciation. Yeah. Tiger. And I said, yeah, that's the one. He's a god. He's my friend. And the biggest Hawaiian walks over and I thought, now I'm going to get pulverized. Yeah. Here it goes, you know. I'm just getting ready for it. And then he just slaps me on the on the shoulder a couple of times. No hard feeling, bro. Just testing you out. You know, that's how they're speaking Hawaiian pigeon. Yeah. And the techies board down off the car. And so somebody scrambles up, unties it, throws it into the bushes. I think that's all right. At least I'm getting it back. And then. Uh, so they're still kind of being semi disrespectful to you by throwing the board, or like were they. Yeah, accepted it or? yeah, because probably they really would have wanted that board too. Yeah. Maybe the guy that threw it, you know, thought, oh, like, oh, wow, yeah. I would have had that board. But yeah, um, but uh, the big guy, who I, I still don't know to this day who it was, uh, but I know that it was Tiger Espera that saved me that day. Uh, he only just passed away a couple of years ago. He's, he's an amazing uh, Hawaiian surfer and... We've got something that's going to go out in the museum about him, actually. This really beautiful saying that he's got. But, um, yeah, so that was uh, my big experience. And so they drove away. They had the Florida guys' board, but they didn't have my board. They drove away. And I just said, see you, boys. You know, and they went, oh, hell, you know, how are you? And I went, yeah, okay. And then I look up the end of the car park, and here's my mate. He's sitting up in the car park, but he's underneath the dash, you know. And I come up to the car and I say, Clancy, when were you going to come down? He goes, there was no way I was going to go down there and it looked like you had it all under control anyway. And I said, well, only just. I said, thanks for the backup. And then the next day, the first thing I did was go straight to the hairdresser. I just shaved all my hair off, like almost like a crew cut, shaved the beard off so I wouldn't be recognised, right? And then I went back down to Honolulu Bay on that Monday just to, you know, here I am. Is everyone ready to have a go? Or yeah, and they, of course I went there. They were only weekend guys. They were, they were probably from Lahui or on the west side. I, I don't know. They they were just surfing on the weekend. And Sundays was this howly bashing day anyway. That they'd, apparently they'd called it. You know they'd like going out there and creating a bit of grief. And anyway, um, there's no one around. But then there's this one Hawaiian guy. He walks by and he goes, "We're not all like that." I said, well, oh, what do you mean? He goes, he said, I was there yesterday. I saw what happened. I said, we're not all like that. And I said, that really means a lot to me. Thanks very much. And that made me feel good. I it yeah. put it in perspective, you know. I mean, there's the heavies. a bad taste in your mouth about somewhere where you're having this experience. Yeah. Where you're creating this life. Yeah, that's right. But but I, I also understood it too. Yeah. I understood where they were coming from. And I understood their their grief and their pain over losing their their culture and yeah. the howl is taking over. And um, so, you, you know, there's this horrible culture of bashing people because of their frustration. But, you know, what's pulled that into line, of course, is now the assault charges. And if you have too many assaults, where well, you are going to go to jail? Yeah. And, and that's sort of really toned it down. And plus, I think, you know, now they've... They've got a little bit more of Hawaii back. They've got their heritage and their culture back. It, it's 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 everywhere in Hawaii. They might not have their land back, you know, but yeah. they've got their Hawaiian culture back, and people really respect that. And you know, of course, um, poor old Rabbit and PT and Kanga, you know, they came up against that in 1976. You know, four years later, 
And that was all because of something that was said, like, you know, the the Aussies are going to come over and crush everyone. And the Wait, Hawaii... I remember that story. Do you yeah. mind touching on that? Yeah, well, that, that's uh, the busing down the door era where um, it, it came from a story in a newspaper. And I think maybe PT was quoted, you know, we're, we're going to show that we're number one in Hawaii. In other words, it came from a competitive point of view, not yeah. not to show disrespect to Hawaii. But, of course, that's how the Hawaiians saw it. And even to this day, at uni, I was doing a, a course in international tourism and that incident got brought up in 1976 where it said a group of Australians had shown disrespect to the Hawaiian culture. And I thought, well, that's not exactly how it was, but you could perceive that that's how it was. And maybe had they been a bit more aware of the Hawaiian culture and what and how the Hawaiians felt by the Howleys taking over their island, maybe they might have been a little bit more careful on what they were going to say. But, of course, you know, PT, Rabbit and um, Kanga, they wanted to be number one in the world. And Hawaii was the place to prove if you wanted to be the number one surfer in the world. But what they didn't take into account is the Hawaiians' pride. And so the Hawaiians, they, as soon as poor Rabbit caught the, the hard, hardest of the beatings... He was the one that was really made an example of. So they've flown over there for the season to yeah. surf the season. Yeah, and so they're kind of a proving ground. Yeah, to prove himself. Yeah, and what's happened? They've got off the plane. They... And they didn't get a welcoming reception whatsoever. They had, um, they didn't realise, but they'd incurred a racial riot in a way, where the Hawaiians were going to, you know, give them a lesson and pay them a lesson for basically for everyone that no one comes over here and says, we're going to be number one, you know. It was a hard lesson for them all. And in the end, it was Eddie Aikau that brokered the peace deal. They had like a kangaroo court where they brought everyone in and, you know, Kanga and PT and Rabbit was stood up and they had to explain themselves. And in the end, Eddie goes, look, we're all surfing brothers. We can all get on. I think that the young Australians have learnt their lesson today and, we move on. You know, Eddie was like that. So he was a peacemaker. Um, but, yeah, it really reached a, a big peak right there and then. And, um, you know, even after that, there was still, like, examples of it. But nowadays I don't think it's quite like that. You know, there's a bit more understanding, and especially from the Howleys too, that you, you have to pay respects to these guys and you don't start, you know, mouthing off or, or make big accusations that you can't back up and um, I think that um, in a way it, it, it talks about everything um, as being aware of people and, and their customs and their culture and and, and being uh, sensitive to it Yeah. and in Australia we hadn't been like that we'd completely turn a blind eye to the Aboriginal culture, we'd turn a blind eye to everything that had gone wrong and you know, suddenly now that's starting to come up where we're acknowledging the traditional owners at yeah. each uh, official speech, traditional owners are being respected and that Australia Day isn't really a celebration for all Australia, you know, all these sort of challenges. Once upon a time, you wouldn't even consider this and and in a way, we were a racist country. Yeah. You know, that that's what came back to me from that time when those girls said, you know, 
you're a racist country. And yeah. But I like to think that we've learned all those incredible lessons that, that we're yeah. not and that we treat everyone equally. What was it like when um, in the 70s, um, so traveling to Hawaii, you're going against other surf cultures um, but and going to California, going against up against other surf cultures. What, what, what was it like when you guys started going to Indonesia, when you guys were creating the surf culture? Uh, Indonesia was something else. I mean, you know, I, I wanted to go there as soon as I saw Morning of the Earth, obviously. And, um, you know, that was filmed in around about, not in seventy seventy one. I, I still remember seeing Albie Felsen and Stephen Kearney at Surface Paradise at a vegetarian restaurant when I was doing my meditation, and I could just see this glazed look on their faces that they'd, you know, that experienced something really, really special. And I nearly got there in seventy three, but I couldn't make it. You know, I'd come back from living in Hawaii, and I went and lived on a farm. Completely different sort of scenario. You know, there was quite a few Australians that actually went there in 73 and they ended up staying there. Um, you know, Kim Bradley, the fly from Avalon, he was one of those guys. And Steve Palmer and Dave Wiley, um, they became sort of like the Indo veterans, um, expat Australians. And, you know, they, um, they, they, they went through the whole thing and, and became, you know, locals over there you know local like businessmen i mean yeah and um and mess themselves in the culture and i would have loved to have done that but it wasn't meant to be was it but i went there in 75 you know and i was really determined um you know to get to bali so i got my uh you know chance together in october and how did, it, how did you travel like what was it like putting surfboards on planes oh okay so i just had one surfboard Van Strollen made me this magic board again, you know, and he'd moved the fin box up on it so uh, the board was really loose with the fin. Um, so just one board. Uh, I think it was seven foot three, you know. Leg it, rope or no leg rope? Oh, yeah, leg rope. Yeah, Leg rope solidly in by the side. Thank God, you know, because my first surf was out at Uluwatu and this friend of mine um, took me out there you know, in those days they had BMOs for travel. Yeah. You know, like these little trucks, you know, throw the board in the back. And we went out there at about 5.30 in the morning. Any other surfers? There was hardly anyone, especially at that hour, right? And, then, and so there was this Peter and I and some other guy went out there. And it was scary, i gotta, I got to say. Surfing Uluwai too, you know, with only three people out. And you could see all this reef underneath you and... And the wave was heavy. It was hard breaking and it had shifty sections. And it was the first time I'd surfed it. So I was so wary of it. And then, you know, just going down through the cave and paddling out, it was such a scary experience. But I was loving it because it was a left-hander. But I was very wary of it. And, you know, for me, I, I would always sort of try and sum up a break before I went out there and, you know, really try and study it and try and work out which is the best approach rather than just going out there and ending up against the cliff face. <laughs> um, and then what I noticed, right, like we surfed at high tide on the peak and as the tide drops, you know, it all starts breaking up into different sections, you know, temples, the balmy um, outside corner and the racetrack, yeah. you know, the low tide racetrack. And then um, I saw Doris and all the, uh, 
you know, Australian really, really, you know, like Larry Blair, for instance, from Aruba, and other guys that were really, really good surfers who'd been to Bali quite a few times and they had it down pat and they're just surfing so unreal at racetrack, you know, in barrels and going a million miles an hour and thinking, wow, you know, this is a whole new frontier, this is a whole new style of surfing. Peter McKay was part of that as well and um, Lopez was there as well, you know, and Lopez was like the god, you know. Yeah. And everyone had sort of gravitated towards Bali and, you know, it was one day when I was thinking, well, I love the Sulawatu, I got really used to it and he, he said to me, oh, no, there's a wave way better than this that we've just found. I said, really? And he goes, yeah, it's that he points out it's that island over there at the end of Java. I said, what's it called? And he says, it's called G-Land. And I went, no oh, way. I just got the shivers. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, wow, okay. I didn't get there until 1979. This was in 75, but I got there and I knew exactly what he was talking about. And, you know, when we went there in 79, we caught a boat called the Queen of Oz and there were six of us on that boat and... Um, you know, we went around in circles a few times in the, in the in the straits in between Bali and and Java, but we got there, and when we pulled up, you know, in the morning it was onshore. I went, oh no, it was like two feet onshore, and so we went onto the reef to check it out. And by this stage, like Lopez and Boyum had created camps. You know, after '75, I think from about '76, Lopez and Boyum and others had created these camps on G-Land and they had approval from the government. But then by 79, something had gone wrong there. You know, I think Boehm had abused the, the privileged. You know, there's all sorts of stories. And um, so there was no longer a surf camp. The camps there, the, you know, the, the treehouse and what have you, but there's no one staying there. So the only way to get there was to sail there, you know. Um, and then that afternoon... Wow, that went offshore and then the swell came in and so we were there for about four or five days. We we're the only ones there, six six people. And I've got one great story here for you if you want me to. Yeah, yeah, please. So, you know, we're, we're, we're taking turns on the boat because we didn't want to leave the boat by itself in case, you know, any of the Javanese fishermen pirates turned up because yeah. they were notorious for jumping on your boat and pulling up anger and there goes your boat or or ransacking everything you've got. You know, yeah. that could be really nasty if they wanted to be. And, in fact, we had a, you know, Javanese fishing boat, you know, pull up alongside us one day and the Victorians are going, fuck off, get out of here, you know, giving them the finger. I'm thinking, oh, this is being really disrespectful. But then I realised that, well, maybe they were safeguarding us, you know, because if we let these guys on, they pulled the knife out or what have you, we were yeah. gone. We didn't have any defence. So I just went <laughs> I just went with, yeah, see you later, guys. And they were doing it with smiles on their faces, this guy, Watto. He was such a character. And he started going, F off, with a big smile on his face. So I kept smiling back. And they're smiling at us too, you know, how they yeah. those smile. Even when they smile, you don't know what they really think. Yeah. But they pulled away and I thought, oh, relief, you know. And then the surf came on that afternoon. So the idea was to take turns. And there were six of us, so... Um, four went out and myself and this other guy, we call him Scallywags, um, we, we stayed in the boat, you know, to wait for our turn. And um, 
Scallywags was uh, reading this book, The Day of the Dolphin by John C. Lilly. It's an amazing book, and it's about dolphins that are used by the U.S. military as projectiles. It, it's just a horrifically sad story. But there's this one photo of a dolphin masturbating against a towline rope for a yacht. And Scallywags gone, take a look at this shot. <laughs> I've just looked at it and thought... I think he was sort of smoking smack too. Yeah. So I just went, that's enough. I'm going. You can stay in the boat. Yeah. I'm going to join the others. So we're parked out in the middle of the bay, right? We're 400 metres from the break, 400 metres from the beach. It's high tide by this stage. So, you know. And I said, okay, Mark, I'm I'm going. You're going to be all right? Oh, yeah, mate. You know. Okay, sure, no worries. So I jump overboard and I start paddling out, you know, and I'm watching these laps. They're perfect. And there's only like four guys out. And I'm going, oh, I can't wait to get out there. I'm halfway out and the next thing, this huge thing comes right alongside me and it's got a white belly and it looks at me and it's got a fin that's bigger than the Jaws movie and it goes underneath the water and disappears. I've gone, what the I'm thinking I am I'm sushi here I'm I'm Jonah and the whale it's all over for me here's the end of my life and I'm praying big time oh please Jesus I'm really sorry for everything I've done you know I know I've done some bad things but please I don't want to go now and and I think the whale's gone it's a killer whale yeah and so it goes around they I find it so so odd that they, there's killer whales in Indonesia. I've seen them in West Sabah. You're like, what the hell is a killer whale doing here? Yeah, well, yeah. they migrate all over the world, don't yeah. they? You know. So then it goes under again and it comes back around. And I think this is it. You know, It's just going to swallow me. And I kid you not, and people laugh when I say this, but you know, it comes up and it looks at me and I swear it winks at me. And then goes under the water and just takes off. And I thank my lucky stars, you know. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I'm saved. Okay. All right. And so I paddle out to the boys and I say, look, I don't want to alarm you, but I just saw a big killer whale. I'm going, oh, yeah, sure, Andy. What are you? You've been smoking that stuff with skellywags. I went, no. I said, I'm just letting you know. Okay. Yeah, um, how the waves? Oh, the waves are pumping. So we're catching waves and then... We sit in the lineup. We're waiting for the next set, and then further out at Kong's, you can see all these fins going. It's like a shark frenzy out, you know, out further at Kong's, and they were going, "God, we're going to have to paddle for the boat." I said, "Yeah, sure." I said, "The boat's like 400 meters that way. It's 400 meters to the beach. I've only just got out here. I'm staying." They've just looked at me and gone, "Oh, if you're staying, we're staying." So, okay, so we just kept surfing, you know, killer whales, sharks, and we're in the middle of paradise, you know. In the middle of nowhere too. Oh, mate, five people out at G-Land, wave after wave, you know, I wasn't going to go in. And, uh, you know, I went back there in 1999, and one day we're up in the treehouse at G-Land checking out the bommie, you know, and it's a big day, you know, when the bommie breaks, it's like 8 to 10 feet. And next thing, there's this thing, flying down the front of a bomby wave on its back with the white bottom, you know, the the belly of... Yeah. Okay. And everyone's going, what the hell's that? And I said, it's a killer whale. What's a killer whale doing out here? And I said, oh, I saw one here 20 years ago. 
maybe it's the, the son of Willie or whatever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and why is it body surfing on its back? And I said, well, it could be pregnant or it could be sick. Apparently they do that yeah. if they're either pregnant or sick. And the dolphins do it too. They'll, they'll body surf on their back. And there it was just plowing down the front of this 10-foot wave. What a sight. And I just thought, unbelievable. What a magical place. Really magical place. Um, I took my wife there for our honeymoon. <laughs> She'll never let me um, forget that or forgive me for that. But she loved it in the end. But, uh, and I got the incredible uh, honeymoon wave too, one of the greatest waves I've ever had, I think, out at G-Land. But, you know, the Americans that were staying at the camp just said, you got to be kidding, man, taking your wife to G-Land? For your honeymoon? <laughs> it's like a bad fasters ad. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah, I guess so. I said, but um, what a place to come to. And this was before they had the really good accommodation as well. And yeah. Megan and I was staying in a treehouse where the monkey had eaten all the soap. The, um, the air conditioning, of course, was just this fan that didn't work that had dust in it. <laughs> Megan was giving me hell. This isn't a honeymoon suite. Yeah. I said, but we're in the middle of paradise. You're going to love it. You know, in the end, she really loved it. And we went back again, you know, with Mark Emberg and Debbie yeah. and um, in uh, 2008. I remember yeah. that trip. I yeah. Remember, yeah. Yeah. So, you know. It was like, yeah, and when we went back, it was really good accommodation and everything was really, you know, good. And and Megan, but Megan loves telling that story here. Yeah. You know, she went to Chiland for her honeymoon. What was what was Bali? What did Bali look like in 1975 and 1976? Oh God, that that was incredible. Like um, Sierra was really staying in Kuta. Um, Leg Legan was just they were just dirt tracks, and you know, on the motorbike, you could sort of go down all those different tracks, you know, Poppy's Lane and all that. They weren't roads. They were just dirt tracks with palm trees everywhere and just a jungle. Uh, you know, the the main part of um, the accommodation was Akuta, where yeah. everyone was staying. You know, there was a couple of buildings down at Legion and maybe Samanac, but really it was just all jungle it was incredible and you could ride the motorbikes along the beach and you know we'd we'd take the motorbikes out to Willowa too and I'd never ridden a motorbike before so it was so oh it was so incredible to be able to ride a motorbike and I, I got really proficient at it and you know we'd have our calico uh, board covers that they made at the time and yeah. calico um, bag you know the barley bag and um, you know you get clothes made so cheaply and eat so cheaply and you know the accommodation was just god i don't know i can't remember how much it was but it was so cheap you know yeah it would have been really easy just to stay there and live but that wasn't going to be you know as it turned out that wasn't going to be part of my plan even though it could have easily have been at the time but um yeah, it was... Did it just feel like such raw adventure? Like, what's the difference between going there then and now? Like, was it just... Oh, wow. doesn't even compare now. It's just so overdeveloped and it's sad what's happened, really. And in a way, we added to that, you know. No one put the handbrake on. Yeah. See, in Hawaii, at least they, they stopped the overdevelopment of the North Shore. That was a really good thing. Um, and... So yeah, and they did the same on Kauai too. Yeah, 
but unfortunately that didn't happen in Bali. It was, I mean, okay, they they kept the the three story limit on the buildings, but the rest of it just there was just too much um, investment, you know, from the Chinese, um, from Malaysia, Singapore, you know, and the Jakarta government were really keen to you know, make this thing, it's like the the golden egg for yeah. them in a way, isn't it? Um, and now they're only just realising now that, oh, wow, they've got to do something. Like they've banned plastic bags, which is really good. They're looking at how they can, you know, make it uh, ecologically sound because there's so much pollution um, and there is so much plastic in the ocean and what have you, so... It's like paradise lost. Uh, yeah. But I'd like to think that, you know, somehow, you know, it can be turned around and that, that the government will get on side. And, you know, but the president came up with this thing, oh, we, we want to create three or four other Bali's when he said that a couple of years ago. I mean, I understood from a tourism point of view what he was trying to get at, but the example of Bali is not a great example of what happened. And, yeah. you know, it's it's very sad to see... Like from you know that change from 1975 to how it is now, you, you, especially you, surfing in garbage. I had a really, really penny drop moment um, in yeah t- 2018 December in December last year. Um, just before I, I was in Western Bar and I used to live over there, and just before I came back to Australia, I thought I'd treat myself to this secret wave that I know: um, right hand perfect barrel. No one around, but you've got to paddle out to the middle of this bay. And so I go down there and it's, and I can, you can't, you can't it's too far out. You can't see what it's like, as, but if it's breaking, you can kind of, and it's clean, you can kind of, you know, you're going to be on. Mm-hmm. And so I paddle out into this bay and I get about halfway out and it's just me, I'm just by myself. Mm. And I just hit this big ball of garbage. Oh, wow. And next thing I'm just paddling through garbage trying to get to the wave and it's disgusting and i'm trying to keep my kind of body out of the water and, and it's literally like the amount of garbage just it's like a full bin a garbage bin that you put out for the mm. um with no no plastic bags holding the garbage in but just loose garbage that's been filled up with water that is literally what it was like and i get out to this wave and it's three to four foot perfect barrel like barrels coming mm. off this reef really draining mm. short barrel like just perfect wave right and i've never seen anything like it the first two waves i just watched and they're just garbage barrels oh no i've never I, I, and i was like and i was looking at it going oh my god like this i'm right in this circle in this bay all the garbage is just collected right here and i'm looking at these perfect waves and i was like i wonder if i can surf one there's too much garbage and i'm like there's these perfect barrels in front of me and I take off on a wave comes and I try and take off and my leg rope is like anchored to all this garbage trying to drag along mm. and I try and take off and my fins are just hitting garbage and everything's just garbage and I got to a point I, I got off the wave and I was like and I literally got scared that I might drown in garbage that there was that much garbage and there was nothing I could do for one it was disgusting being in all this garbage for two I was thinking if I come off my board here I'm getting tangled in all this I might actually drown there's so much garbage and I just had to paddle in mm. and I paddled in and I had to keep stopping to get all the garbage off my, I think I ended up taking the leg rope off because it was just anchoring to too much garbage and I couldn't paddle. Mm. And I ended up paddling through it, getting back in. Once I got kind of close to the beach, about 50 meters to the beach, the garbage kind of dispersed. I remember having a big wash in the water, even though, 
And for one, I felt absolutely disgusting because mm. I'd been in all this garbage. For two, I'd, I'd always, um, living in Indonesia for years, I saw so much gar- and the garbage starting to build up and you see mm. it all on the, the beach and everything. Um, but to see it to that extent, to that level, where you literally can't even surf. Like I couldn't surf these perfect waves that were, I was by myself. Like it was this, and it, and I was like, wow, this is, it was one of those things that, okay, you see it and you see how bad it is, but now it's actually stopping you from doing what you love to the extent. And it was like, man, it, it was actually really sad. Like it, mm. like I, I came in from that with my heart really in a lot of pain, like just uh, of yeah. what's happening. It's really disappointing, isn't it? Yeah. And that's what we're up against, you know, the the great plastic pollution. And but you know, governments are talking about trying to do stuff about it. Um, but the Indonesian government really need to get on the front foot on this. And so, you know, they're, they're trying in Bali. There's various different groups, you know, doing things. But the plastic pollution in the ocean, it, it's just horrific. So, um, you know, we have to come up with products that are decomposable and that that don't, you know end up in the ocean and a lot of this starts from our own home use and, and what we do within our own domestic uh, environment and so those sort of lessons and tips need to be installed everywhere so to stop people from creating more waste and um, you know how we do this is a huge challenge isn't it yeah. but I think it starts at home yeah hey um just before we get off topic too much there's one question that I wanted to ask you when you're when you're um, talking about G-Land before, and I was thinking you've had such a amazing surf career. You've always been involved in surfing, and what you won a world title in 1972. Um, no, in 1972, in the in the world titles at San Diego, I got six. I, I, I missed out on the final by about that much, um, and that was in the Open. So I was pretty happy with that, but I sort of realised that it was before professional surfing really had started. Yeah, and I thought. I'm not going to go down the same path as PT and Rabbit and, and the guys. You know, I'm going to try and do something, you know, more with my life, in other words. So, I, and I wasn't really that confident that I could make a living out of surfing. Well, for a start, I wasn't making surfboards. Really, I've never been manually gifted, but I, I really know design in my head and yeah. what I need and what I like and, and what I think works. But um, I think that I just decided that you know, there was bigger, bigger things to learn about in the world. But I didn't want to walk away from surfing either because I really, you know, surfing was that addiction. I really enjoyed that. And, um, um, you know, and, and you know that surfing adventure, you know, you never lose sight of surfing adventure. And I guess in a way where that that's what happened to me in the 70s, instead of, like, following trying to follow a tour or, or or trying to be a professional surfer like pt and rabbit i kept surfing and going to other places enhancing my surfing experience but also learning of other things in the world and you know working all sorts of odd jobs yeah so that i wasn't just restricted in um, my way of life and um but what had happened was is that um you know, like I said, when the longboards came back in the early 80s, I went, oh, beauty, I can, I know how to surf a longboard. And so straight away, and Van Strollen again made this amazing board for me. At first, I was just eight feet. And Van Strollen made this board that was 24 inches wide, which was very wide. Yeah. You know, uh, with a diamond tail and a big concave in the nose. 
you could nose ride until the cows came home. You could do all sorts of turns. And then um, Shona Ann, around that same time, had come up with a keel fin, you know, from Ben Lexon. And, I mean, this is in the, the height of the either the Mark Richards twin fin or the Simon Anderson thruster, and Shane's come up with a keel fin. And Shane could surf them, but no one else really took to them. No one else really understood them. But on longboards, wow, they worked incredible, as long as you didn't hit the kelp, yeah. you know, because you got the winged tips and, yeah, yeah, yeah. or a garbage bag, you know. Um, so all of that experience I'd had competing, you know, and all the mistakes that I'd made in the contest, you know, in the 70s where I was a pretend professional surfer, suddenly I, I knew what I had to do in the longboards if I was to win or if I was to get a title. And um, so I sort of came back bigger and better than ever and I won the Australian title in 1987 to get my shot at the world title in Puerto Rico in 88. And it came down into the final between me and this really good Brazilian friend, Ricardo de Souza. And Ricardo and I had competed in the 1972 world titles on short boards together. He'd actually beat me in the opening heat. And I thought, how dare a Brazilian beat me? Is this you know? Ricardo de Souza any relation to Adriana de Souza? No, no relation. Yeah. yeah, de Souza, de Souza, yeah, however you want to pronounce yeah. it. You know, that's a fairly common name over there, a bit like yeah. Smith yeah. in Australia. Um, but yeah, Ricardo was just one of the early guys from Brazil, a really lovely guy, and um, it was just ironic that you know he'd beaten me in an opening heat in '72, and I was just. I was filthy on myself that, oh, Brazilian has beaten me. But he was a really good server and a really lovely guy, uh, really good in big waves too. And then it was out of him and I in 1988, you know. Wow, what's that, like, you know, 16 years later or something? Yeah. Here we are going for a world title. And he was really good. He could stand on his head. That was one thing I couldn't do on the longboard. <laughs> yeah. I, and I couldn't even stand on my head in the lounge room, let yeah. alone on my long longboard. But I could nose ride and I could switch feet and I, I figured that I could sort of outmaneuver him. But it was so close in the end it was a plus and minus, you know, where we're at equal points. Yeah. So they had to go back through the count pack and I got one extra plus than he did. So, you know, it was a really narrow decision, but it was a win and, and you know, for me that I thought, God, I finally won a, a world title. You know, I had a chance in seventy two to win it and I've won it in eighty eight. And it really, it did help me in a lot of different areas. Obviously, you know, as a profile and, you know, getting jobs or, or what have you, you know, especially with the radio thing as well. What, what did that feel like to, to, what does that feel like to have a world title under your belt? It, it was incredible. It, yeah. You, you know, I don't want to sound too egotistical, but it's like, it's a milestone that you've actually achieved something in something that you spent all your life about that you've actually hit a number one title yeah. and a world title. I mean, people go, oh, longboards, you know, that's not a world title or, you know, oh, it was the world I say longboard title, not the ASP one. It didn't matter. In fact, you know, there was a bigger international class of people in that particular competition than any of the ASP events. ASP events were elite, you know, with Nat and... Stuart Entwistle and a few others, you know, it wasn't a big circuit. There were like 40 competitors in this and they came from all over the world. And the American guy was incredibly good. The New Zealand guy was really good. And um, and Ricardo got in the final. And 
I just sort of knew that, well, if I to win this, I've really got to surf the house down. And in the end, you know, I got the plus over uh, Ricardo. And that was at Surface Beach, uh, Aquadilla in Puerto Rico, which has now become a world surfing reserve. That whole area that um, where we competed is now a world surfing reserve, which is kind of ironic, you know, because later on I would follow the world surf reserve campaign to get a world surfing reserve here on the Gold Coast and the latest world surfing reserve is in Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico are really going through it, aren't they? You know, they've, they've had all sorts of terrible storms and tornadoes and the economy is not good, the politics. It's, it, it couldn't be in more turmoil if it tried. And it's now part of America. When we were there in 1988, it was only territory of America. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> God, uh, the, the night before the final was, um, um, well, the night before, two nights before the final ended up being a very big night where somehow um, the Ramones came from New York to play in, in Puerto Rico. You're kidding me. I'm not yeah. kidding you, right? So um, I, I was aware of the Ramones, but I, I was sort of a bit more into laid-back music, I guess, or... <laughs> A cringe. I even listened to Michael Jackson. Those days. So the Ramones are going. They're a punk group, aren't they? And you know, all the younger team, you know, in the Australian team. Oh, they're the best band. You know, they're legendary. We've got to go and see it. I said, Yeah, okay. So we go along to this concert, and of course, I'd never quite seen a mosh pit before either. I mean, I was married with kids at this stage. I, I had a fairly domesticated life around about 1988. I worked at the um, Boren Bay RSL. You know. So my life was sort of normal, yeah, as normal as it could be. And here I am watching the Ramones, and they're like these guys that look like death warmed up, you know. They've all got this long black hair and they're barely moving on stage and they've got these huge sunglasses on and they're just like, they look like they're monuments, you know. But the music's incredible. And the mosh pit's just going mental with the, the Puerto Ricans, the Californians, and the Australians are all in there as well. And I ended up sitting out the back with the guy who was doing the lights. He said, come up the back here with me, you know. And so he gave me the history of how, oh, Puerto Rico is the territory of America, but, you know, we don't really like the gringos. We don't like the Americans. And he sort of gave me that. And he said, I fought for America in the Vietnam War. This guy was really interesting, wasn't he? Yeah. And, um, you know, we um, he, he gave me this incredible insight into the Puerto Rico, the way it is as an island and the people, while the Ramones is going on. Can you imagine? So I was pretty pumped after that. And I tried to talk a whole lot of people into, I was with this American guy and he wanted to go to this pizza bar that had pool tables and to kick on and have a party there. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll come along. And uh, I tried to talk all uh, the women competitors into coming with us as well. But they went, oh, no, we're under curfew. We've all got to go back. We were staying in this whole hospital building. That was our barracks. That's where all the teams were staying. It was an old hospital. It was like this old sort of brick buildings, you know. Uh, it, it was really sort of up on top of the hill overlooking the ocean. It was a pretty cool spot, yeah. but it was really old, you know. Um, so I was in a hurry to go back to the barracks. I thought, yeah, why not? Let's Let's go. So, you know, we end up at this pizza place and the Americans going, oh, yeah, let's have a few beers. I'm saying, yeah, okay. It's, it's only two nights out. I should be okay. So I'm drinking up. And then the next thing, 
these guys from San Juan, that's the capital of Puerto Rico, they turn up, there's a gang of them, and they look pretty deadly, and their eyes are wide open. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I know what this look is. Yeah. And the California's gone, we've got to go. We, and I said, it's too late. They've just walked in. And one guy's going, hey, bro. And uh, the California says to me, I'm just going to pretend I'm an Australian because if I talk you know, with my American accent, they're going to beat the hell out of me. I went, oh, okay, that's all right. Let me do the talking. So I'm just going, hey, boys, how you going? I'm from Australia. My mate here is a bit drunk. He can't really, he doesn't know what he's doing. You know, he doesn't make sense. But, you know, great to see you. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, because I realise these guys are heavies, you know. Yeah. So yeah. the next thing, they're buying the beers. We're getting really drunk. Oh, my God. And I'm caught in a situation. And then they've gone, come on, let's go back to San Juan. we got girls. we got parties. We'll just keep going, you know. We got everything, you know, yeah. including all the marching dust you want in the world. And I'm thinking, this is going to absolutely kill my world title chance. You know what I mean? I've been in this situation before, where you know succumb to whatever, yeah, and yeah. it's completely stuffed me up. So I've just gone, boys. I really would love to come to San Juan with you, and I'd love to party on, but I'm the team captain for Australia. It's up to me, and I've got to be down on the beach at 6 o'clock in the morning and make sure that everything's okay. You know, calling myself team captain, manager, I'm, I'm you know, yeah, the I'm team the is depe- dependent on me. I said, I hope you can understand that. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, we understand that. We'll, we'll come down and see you down there on the finals or something, you know. I said, yeah, no worries, and the Californian just couldn't believe it. He said, how did you get out of that? And I said, I've had a little bit of experience in these matters. Yeah. So we drove back. We got back to the barracks, and it was like 4 o'clock, and I thought, no way. So I got to walk into my room, but I've walked into the wrong room, and I've walked into the room where our team manager, Alan Atkins, is. Now, Alan Atkins is probably the straightest guy I've ever met in my life. You know, lovely guy, top administrator, what have you. But... Alan does have a heart. <laughs> I've got to say that because when I walked in and he comes out of the room to see who the hell's walking in at four o'clock in the morning and he sees me, he just shakes his head and he walks straight back in the room. So, I mean, he could have berated me. He could have said, what the hell have you done? And I realised I'm, I'm in deep shit, right? So I go, it's okay, Alan. I've got it under control. And, you know, I was like about 33 at this stage, 35. So I'm still pretty tough, you know, still yeah. got a lot of energy and a lot of resistance. So I go straight back to my room and find where are the Panadols. I, I must have taken like about four straight up, you know, and then I've started doing exercises, like walking up and down on a plank to get my coordination. No sleep. I got to go down to the beach. I'm in a river charge the first morning heat and I've got to win that to get in the final. Man, I paddled out. I was seeing stars. <laughs> and all I could think of was winning that heat. And I just took every wave that came through like a madman. I didn't even notice anybody else out there. And I won it hands down. And no one could believe it in the state with no sleep that somehow I'd won this and I was in the final. And Alan Hackens just looked at me and he's gone. You're incredible. You're amazing. What did he say? You're unbelievable. Something yeah. like that. And I said, Well, I'm going to go back to the barracks now 
and I'm going to sleep all day, so I'm ready for the big one the following day. You're kidding me, yeah. And the next day, we're up at like 5 o'clock in the dark. I'm ready to go. I'm in commando style, you know. I'm thinking, I'm not going to let this chance go by, you know. And so, you know, we get down the beach. The Puerto Ricans have turned up. There's thousands of people. They've got the samba. They've got, they're doing salsa dancing. They've got their little, you know, turntables on the beach. They've they got, like, disco. They've got everything going. It's an amazing atmosphere. All the flags are up, you know. And I am just so determined that I am going to win this thing no matter what. And I get down the beach, I got the jersey on and, you know, the four finalists, it's out of four of us, you know. And um, the, the the Brazilians that are backing uh, Ricardo, they come back and they try and do a bit of voodoo on me. I'm not kidding. They try and do a bit of voodoo on me. So you know what I've done? I've just picked up a bunch of sand and I've just thrown it at them. <laughs> You're kidding me? Yeah, in their face, like sand straight into their face. Don't give me that shit. Get out of here, you know. I'm not letting anything stop this, you know. And then the American is a really, the opponent is a really good paddler. Like I think he was a champion paddler and he was a champion cyclist, you know. God knows. So I sort of knew what he was going to do. When we hit the water, he would go around the break to get to the peak, whereas I took the gamble and went straight out the front, you know. Yeah. And if a set came through, I was a goner. But if it didn't, I would get to the takeoff before him. And sure enough, that's what happened. First wave came up. I'm already on the inside and I've got the wave and I've gone, see ya, you know. <laughs> and he just looked at me and just went, what? I just demoralised him and he ended up getting fourth. Um, the Kiwi, he was incredible. Jason Matthews, oh, my God, this guy could rip. He was, he could ride short boards, long boards. He could do airs on long boards. He was amazing. He kept slipping off his board. I don't know what happened there. I, I don't understand why he kept, maybe he used the wrong wax or something or he had oil on him or something. So in the end, it was just out of Rico and I, you know what I mean? It just wave for wave for wave for wave. So, yeah, it was a big moment, Aaron. You've taken me right back to that moment yeah. and, and the build-up for it. And, um, you know, when I came back to Boron Bay, I was sort of a hero, but there was something else going on at the same time. We tried to get a World ASP event on in Boron Bay and it didn't quite work and I was going to be the contest director. And so I landed back in purgatory, even though I was thinking, uh, you know, I've won a world title. Rusty Miller said to me, thank God you didn't come second. Yeah. In other words, if they're beating you up like they are now, imagine if you came second. Um and that was yet another experience where, oh, it's a, a completely different story where the college, uh, the Northern Rivers College of Advanced Education, were going to build a private institution down at Seven Mile at Boron Bay and it was going to be called the Cape Byron Academy. And Rusty and I had been invited to create surf schools and all sorts of different things with this and it would have had accommodation. It would have been amazing, do you know what I mean? But people just saw it as a complete invasion and um, there were certain people that lived up on top of the Broken Head um, National Park there that they were so opposed to it and there was a movement that said, no. We One was um, they didn't want the Cape Bryan Academy and the other was they didn't want a world, to they didn't want, sorry, a world tour event in the Boron Bay Lennox Head area. 
So I came, I, I, I came back into a maelstrom yeah. of controversy. It was just incredible, wasn't it? You know, so I felt pretty good about the world title. The people around Moran, they were ready to hang me, you know. <laughs> That's what can happen, can't it? Yeah. Um, but it, it led me into the job of doing advertising at the Northern Star and I was hugely successful there. But the only problem was is that I was living in Lismore and I de- developed a bit of a drinking problem, especially after working on the phones all day. And then I was staying at the hotel across the road. And so I just drink the house down. And so this was obviously a problem that was sort of happening. And I didn't, I didn't really have a grip on it. Um, and in the end, my mum sort of helped me. She said, go and see this guy. And, and the guy said, he said, you don't have to be like John Wayne when you fall off the horse you can stay off the horse. You know the old saying like, when you fall off the horse, you get back on the horse. Yeah. He, he said to me, you don't have to get back on the horse. And I, I thought, oh, this is different psychology. In other words, have a really good look at yourself and make your own decision. You know, you don't have to keep putting pressure on yourself. You know, you can put a lot of pressure on yourself trying to do certain things, right? And um, that was... Uh, a really great word of advice and then I I had to go through a really long period analysing that you know and you know it, it really accounted for my first uh, breakup you know my first marriage life you know and you know by about 2009 I realised I got to do something about this and I thought oh I've had a really good life you know I've had the life of Riley I've you know, I've taken all sorts of uh, experiments and abused myself all over, and now I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to stop, and it's about health. It's about getting um, straight, and um, you know. So I'm like now ten and a half years, you know, sober and yeah, um, no drugs, no alcohol, not even coffee. <laughs> tea is my only vice. Yeah, uh, I'm ready for another cup of tea now after all of that. So yeah, that's uh, that were that was a really really personal experience, you know, and it and it goes all the way back to winning that world title, and then what do you do afterwards? See, a lot of people in sport I've seen that you know they become world champions and they achieve the top of their game, but what do they do afterwards to follow through? And sometimes they don't, and sometimes they fall into that that syndrome where they. Um, they fall on their face, they, you know, yeah. and they have all sorts of problems, don't they? Um, like, did you constantly feel like that you had to try back it up somehow, that, like, you've hit your peak and then that was it? You just, just were well, you just lost? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, then I sort of re-immersed myself in, um, with the radio uh, when I started at CFM and, and the media career. But I kept surfing, Um and then I think I got to around about 2001 where I went in a few more events just to see, you know, I'd won an event down at Manly and, you know, I could still see that I could compete. But then I sort of realised, you know, I went to Bali in 2003 and, you know, we surfed in the Bali Om events and I got in a couple of finals there as well. But then I realised in the end, it doesn't matter anymore. You know, I've achieved what I've achieved. I should be happy with that. And yeah. and then you just go on and, and you find other things that interest you. But, 
you never lose, as a surfer, you never lose that desire to surf, right? Yeah. To go and catch waves and that feeling that you get from surfing. Do you still remember your most magical moment in the surf? Like the most magical wave, the most magical <laughs> surf? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's been a few of them. But I, get, I guess the, the best one is probably the biggest wave I've ever caught was at Bonsai Pipeline in 1972. And, um, you, you know, once again, I was on a mission where... I knew that I wanted to surf Pipeline and I wanted to surf it big. Um, and being a goofy foot too, I was, I was well primed to do that. I didn't really care about, you know, trying to surf 30-foot waves at Waimea Bay uh, or Sunset. But Pipeline was this, you know, big um, challenge for me. And, you know, I'd surfed it a number of times over the, the periods that I'd been there. And this one afternoon... It was, I, I was actually living on the beach with a friend there, just um, up from Backdoor, and so you could see Pipeline. And I, I watched it all morning, you know, from there, just watching what it was doing on the high tide. And then the tide started going out in the afternoon. So it started to break outside pipe. And it's not breaking one outside pipe, it's on second reef that it's oh, breaking. Yeah, yeah. And then there's a further reef outside again, you know, where they surf out behind Wyomere alligators or whatever it's called um so this is the afternoon this is the one you know and <laughs> i had this terrible board that i'd borrowed from pt um but it was eight foot four and it was thick and it would allow me to paddle into really big waves and so i got down the beach be scared oh, i was terrified you know thinking god how do i get out there for a start and Dick Earl walked down the beach, you know. And Dick Earl had been living in Hawaii. This was before Dick started doing movies and photos and all of that, before he teamed up with Jack McCoy. And Dick had been working, you know, in Hawaii, making boards with Randy Rarick. And he knew how to paddle out. And he said, oh, you got to paddle straight out in front of the peak. So you got to be kidding. He said, I'm going to get cream. And he says, no, the, the current is going to take you down. And as soon as you get past the peak... Then you've got to get out to the open, you know, to the deep water. Because if you keep going down on the current to Pupakaya, you'll get absolutely smashed. Yeah. So it's like you jump in and start paddling and you don't stop paddling. Don't stop paddling. So I were jumped you, in with fit? Dick. Were you, you're fit because you're just... Really, really fit. You know, like this is after the world titles and living on Kauai and surfing in all sorts of ways. So yeah. I'm at the peak of my game for surfing in Hawaii. And when Dick and I hit the water... I, I didn't even see him. I just paddled like a you know, champion, just straight out and then went around the peak and got out and I was in deep water. I th thank God. I don't think Dick got out. <laughs> I still haven't spoken to him about that episode yet, you know. I've seen him so many times and I've got to really recall what actually happened to him. But So anyway, I kept paddling and I paddled for outside pipe. Like all the others are sitting on the peak and a little bit further out from the peak inside the first reef and I just paddled way out around past them and I was out on the second reef by myself and my idea was to catch one of those humongous waves out the back and then come on to the inside so I sat out there for nearly 45 minutes and I pretended to paddle for a few waves just to get my bearing see if I could catch it you know and then I'd pull back and then I'd come back get my position, line it up from the beach, see where everybody is inside. And I thought, I'll just wait for a really big set. And then the next oh, thing, my God. <laughs> yeah. 
the set, you know, I could see like there's four waves in the set. It's already breaking on the way outside reef, you know, capping out there. I've gone, here it comes, you know, and then it sort of stop, stops capping and then it just swells, in they come. And the first one looks okay, but I think the second one's better. Well, normally the second wave of a four-way set's better anyway. Yeah. And the second one is just huge and it's already capping. And I'm thinking, this is it. So I turn around and I start paddling and there's even a little bit of white water that pushes me down the front of the <gasps> wave, you know, and I jump up and I start going down the front of the wave. And when the wave's that big, like this is like an 18-foot wave. It, it's oh a huge, God. huge wave. And the water starts drawing from underneath you. So you actually start going back up the wave as you're paddling down. You know, it's so yeah. big. And then the rails start rocking from side to side because of the motion in the swell. It's not like a normal wave. You're riding this thing that's just mammoth. And then as you're going down, the water's sucking out even further from the bottom as you come to First Reef. And everyone that's sitting inside, they're all going, no, and they're all jumping off their boards. This, this is pre-leg ropes, you know. Yeah. They're all bailing off their boards. And here I am just flying down this nearly 20-foot wave. And then I get down to the bottom and I'm thinking, God, I hope I can do a turn. And somehow I do this crouch turn and I come around off the bottom and then I come up into the middle of the wave and then I'm just pushing down with all my weight onto the front to hold my board into the wave and it just throws over the top of me and then I somehow come out of it. So you're you're in the pit. You're yeah. in this pipeline pit. Yeah. Come from Second Reef. Yeah. Are you worried about boards flying at you? Like- no, because they're way inside me. Yeah. You know, I, I've I've gone past them. It, they're they're in the distance, like boards throwing out and people diving for the bottom, and and I'm going, don't don't wipe out. You don't don't lose the rail. You know, because the outside rail's starting to go a little bit, like I'm going to get sucked over. So I'm sort of pushed down on the front, keep that inside rail in and just like push down forward and I actually use my hands a little bit, you know, to direct me. Yeah. And then I'm saying don't fall off because right there I'm sort of feeling a bit of bump and I'm sort of feeling a little bit unbalanced but I've got my position and then I come out of it and then, wow, I come out of it and then thought, shit, I made it. And then right at the end it's like this giant section ready to close out. And so I've just done this turn and just kept going uh, over the top. And, you know, like the crazy photos where you see the guy flying one side and the board the other to get over the back of the wave. Yeah. And I've made it. And um, Mike Armstrong was one of the guys in those days that was, you know, he was one of the mainstay out there at Pipeline, really good goofy foot, good friends of Lopez and, he was one of the top Hawaiian pipeline regulars and he said to me, oh, that was a hell of a wave. And, you know, I heard people on the beach were cheering and, you know, it was really cool, wasn't it? And later that night, you know, I, I, I go around and see uh, PT and uh, a few other people and Bernie Baker's got the sequent shot of it, you know. And I remember PT's face nearly dropped when he seen <laughs> how big the wave is. And how good the sequence is. And then I said to Bernie, um, do you think I might be able to get a copy of the photos? He says, oh, I don't know. No surfer magazine owns them. And I just thought, it's sort of the story of my life in a little way. Like, because I wasn't really in with him and I wasn't in with what was going on. I was sort of a bit of an outsider. And I said, oh, that's okay. I just let it go. And thought, oh, well. 
I'm never going to see those photos, you know. And um, and then when he came out to the stubbies, he said to me, Bernie Baker said, oh, I remember that wave and those photos that I took of you. God, I wish I had them today. And, you know, I wanted to say, yeah, fuck, I wish I had them too. But I just looked at him and smiled. And, you know, it, it wasn't such a big thing for me that 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 I didn't have it because the memory was just yeah. Huge. I was going to say you've got the you've got the memory you've got the experience of it. And you know, even talking about it now, I relive every moment of that wave, which is one of the most exciting waves I've ever caught in my life, and definitely one of the biggest. Um, but then what happened was that Megan was looking at stuff on the internet. Your and, wife, Megan. Yeah, and and she saw some photos from Steve Wilkins. Right, and he was a really good photographer at the time, and. Megan found this photo of me um, at Backdoor, you know, surfing on my backhand that Wilkins had taken. You know, it was on his site. And, oh, wow, that's that's a classic, you know. And there's other shots there of PT standing around, you know, on the beach and <laughs> looking nice. And, um, and then I'm looking through the file and then I see the wave. And it's got unidentified Saturday afternoon pipeline, and that's when it was, and that's me. So I, I've somehow, you know, many, many years later, I've found one photo of that wave, and it's on Steve Wilkins' file. I tried to get a copy of it, but I, I couldn't get through to him, but I've got the low res at least. Yeah. And um, so that's good enough for me that yeah. at least there's a copy of that wave, you know. Um what a magical experience. Yeah, it's sort of funny because we, we grew up just, you know, it was nice seeing photos and movies of yourself, but it wasn't the be and an end all. Like, you know, by the 80s, you know, profiling surfers and, you know, being on the front cover of surfing magazines and being in surfing movies was everything, and especially with your sponsorship and, you know, of course your ego and everything else. But in the 70s, a lot of people, you know, turned turned their turned away from that they they weren't that they didn't want to really be publicity freaks you know yeah. uh, but to pt's credit pt was and he held on to everything and he held on to this incredible log of memorabilia uh, with clippings and photos and stuff and and thank god for the internet he's been able to send me stuff that um that i wouldn't have held on to or would have lost or you know i wouldn't have bothered about um so I can thank him for that. And, you know, PT it was this guy that, you know, he made surfing a professional living. And and it was sort of later on when I started a media profile with CFM that I used a lot of his approach to do what I was doing because I knew that that's how it was done. Yeah. And um, But, you know, it's funny, in the 70s, we, uh, we didn't want to be like that. We, we didn't want to sell out. Yeah. wanted to be soul surfers and surfing experience didn't care about all the publicity and the kudos, the kudos and the accolades that was about there in uh, the moment in the in the zone at yeah. the time but you've you've been such a big part of surfing you got the world surfing reserve put through here on the gold coast yeah and then right now you you just showed me this event just before that um global wave conference yeah that's yeah. coming up in february 2020 and uh, that might be the pinnacle for me, Aaron, I think. Um, the World Surfing Reserve, I mean, that went back to, well, you know, when I met Felipe Poma, um, you know, who's 
one of the, the greatest big wave surfers ever. He was trying to get a world surfing reserve in in Juan Chaco in northern Peru. Juan Chaco is the home of the Caballito de Toro, the Peruvian reed board. And so, you know, he invited us over there for the anniversary of his um, 50th anniversary of his world title. He won a world title in 1965, the year after Midget Farrelly had won in 64. And... Um, he wanted us to. He wanted me to join him in a paddle because he's an incredible paddler. Uh, it was going to be a forty k paddle to start with, and I went, "Oh, look, that's okay, thanks, Filippo." But I haven't really been paddling that much, so I'll, I'll take photos and I'll document it. You know, I'll go into my media role yeah. on that. But um, when we went over there and we saw the Peruvian reed board and Juan Chaco, and and you know, I think that Juan Chaco is the number five world surfing reserve. Megan said to me, my wife said, wouldn't it be great to bring a, a, you know, a Peruvian reed board back to Australia and show the Australians what this culture is? And I went, yeah, for sure. Um, how do we do that? And so meanwhile, um, we were sort of working on the World Surfing Reserve and they really supported us too, the Peruvians. And by the end of 2015, it was a huge fight. It had gone on for a while and... We had to convince the mayor, Tom Tate, that what we were doing was really special and it wasn't going to lock up the beaches and restrict the movement of anyone for the beach and surf. And we got got uh, all the councillors, well, one sort of opposed it, but that was okay. It was a minority, you know. Um, we got approval from the council. We definitely had approval from the state government right from day one. Anastasia Palaszczuk, the Premier of Queensland, was always supporting it. And then um, in 2016, not only did we have our official ceremony for the World Surfing Reserve, number eight in the world, but we brought out the Peruvians and they brought out the reeds, stuffed in board bags, you know, because we couldn't take them, we couldn't fly one out or put one on a boat. It just wasn't going to work that way. So the next best thing was to stuff board bags, longboard board covers full of reeds and we brought Webito out and he made two, one in uh, Bondi, one in Crescent Head, and we did this Peruvian reboard tour with a collaboration between Gold Coast World Surfing Reserve and Huanchaco World Surfing Reserve, which was really, really special. Um, the thing about the World Surfing Reserve, though, when Gold Coast was announced in 2015, it was actually in the UK at Cornwall, where they were hosting the World Surf, uh, where they were hosting the Global Wave Conference there, and. Um, so they made the announcement that Gold Coast had become the eighth World Surfing Reserve from Cornwall and they ended up having a party in Parliament in, in London uh, where they once again announced Gold Coast and that was at the end of the Global Wave Conference in 2015. So I kept thinking later on, wow, it would be really good to be able to host something like that here in Australia and it was supposed to happen in America in 2017 but there was some other big event on so they said that they would go for 2018 at Santa Cruz in California. And when they said that, I thought, okay, we're going to go for it in 2020. So Megan and I went over there in 2018 at Santa Cruz for the Global Wave Conference and we made the bid and Save the Waves Coalition, the uh, host you know, organisation that owned Global Wave Conference, they gave us the tick, they gave us the approval. So, you know, we're really excited to be hosting this because it's never been hosted before in Australia. It's been at a different international location every two years. And this will be the sixth biannual. And we're hosting it at Gold Coast Campus, Southern Cross University. And we've got all sorts of people turning up, you know, from... We've got our own Greta Thunberg, 
uh, her name's Shalise Leesfield. She's 13 years of age from Port Macquarie. She's got all sorts of environmental awards under her name. And um, she just saw us on the internet and she's asked to be on the speakers list. And we said, absolutely. So from, you know, Shalise to somebody like Richard Harvey, who makes beautiful wooden surfboards these days, he's made surfboards all his life. Um, he's going to do an abstract, you know, on where the surfing industry is and, and the art of surfboard making. Um, and so many people in between. I think we're up to about 90 abstracts. <laughs> so it's a three-day conference. We're going to have to break them into panels and we're going to have to have breakout rooms. And um, The Gold Coast Campus Southern Cross University is an amazing venue for it. And just so happens that I'm in my second year of Bachelor of Arts in Social Science, and so I know the building well. And um, is, is, is it a ticketed event? Yeah, I- it's a ticketed event. Yeah, yeah, of course. So it's um, for three days, including meals, and you get a goodie bag, including t-shirt and name tag, and um, and uh, and a, a, a recyclable mug. Um, it's about three hundred dollars. Yeah, which is pretty good value. You know, because you've got all these people turning up speaking on a whole range of sustainable, you know, um, solutions and uh, plastic problem and all sorts of, um, you know, theories on how we can make the planet better and addressing the climate wave, uh, climate change issue. Um, so, yeah, there's some incredible academics, conservationists, activists coaches, professional surfers, world champions, historians, authors, photographers, yeah. you name it. Um, Isn't it amazing that you can use your lifestyle, your career, your talent to be able to now pave the way as well, to still pave the way, like even in a different way, like you can spread all this knowledge now. You mm-hmm. can um, – stuff like the World Surfing Reserve, there's people like you there that they can use – their whole history to be able to put things like this in, to be able to make this still such a special thing. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's incredible to be in that position and uh, it gives, gives us a lot of joy um, and a lot of satisfaction that we're trying to do something that w- really will make a difference and um, present that opportunity to everybody else. So, yeah, that's my philosophy in life to, you know, try and make this world a better place, healthier place, healthier place and really come up with solutions you know, we, we one of our slogans is seeking sustainable solutions. Yeah. So it's just not going to be a talk fest. It's going to be great examples of how we can sort of turn this ecological catastrophe around and <clears throat> and save the planet, save all of us. You know, it's it's dire. You know, at the university every day, the, they're telling us just how bad it is, and we know how bad it is. So, you know, it's a matter of doing something. As Attenborough said, you know, you can sit back and just go, well. It's paradise loss and we can't do anything or we can actually try and do something about it. So yeah. I'd rather be in that latter camp of trying to do something about it. So Global Wave Conference has come around and it's an amazing time when conservation worldwide is at a fever pitch, isn't it? And the ocean conservation is so relevant and we really, you know, we jointly and as a community and as a global um following all around, all around the world. We need to be able to do something about it. So, yeah, we've got lots of internationals turning up, which is really cool. And I think we've got um, – we're aiming for about 400 people, 200 of which have got to be in, in, international. But 
the way we're going, we're going to have so many more than that. Um, so we've got a three-day conference, but we've got other festival-style activities. Save the Waves Movie Festival. We've got an industry night where we're going to pay homage to Tony Dollar, Doris Ellington, you know, who's just an incredible Gold Coast surfing legend and the guy that saved the South African that had been lost at sea in the Mentawais. That That's oh, just an amazing story in itself. Um, Doris has actually put up a 12 nights boat trip for the lucky registration winner. So whoever registers on our site, you know, globalwaveconference2020.com.au, uh, will be in the running to win this um, $4,500 boat trip with um, Captain Doris, who's, you know, probably the most experienced skipper up in the Mentawais. And then the Friday night, we're, you know, we'll raise money for the like-minded groups, um, the conservation groups and at the Greenmount Surf Club. We're going to have a huge day on the Friday. We'll have a paddle out in the morning to sign off on the Global Wave Conference. We're going to have a, a workshop forum all about World Surfing Reserves and how it works with council. With our World Surfing Reserve here on the Gold Coast, we're really unique because we have a surf management plan and an ocean beaches strategy that's part of council's policy and it's linked in with the state government's coastal policies. So we meet you know, a couple of times a year and we discuss the issues and concerns of what's going on out there. And so we've got this mechanism that's underpinning the management of the World Surfing Reserve. So it's it's no longer symbolic. It's no longer just ceremonial. That really does mean something. And we're interacting now with council and government to get a result. And uh, the latest one was having the concert at Coolangatta shifted to the Metricon when you know there was this proposal of putting 35,000 uh, punk fans, not punk fans, sorry, rap fans, yeah. on the beach at Coolangatta in this confined spot, taking up pretty well the whole beach and um, caging them in rather than taking it to a proper auditorium like the Metricon. And World Surfing Reserve was sort of getting hammered over it, saying, well, what are you going to do about this? And I thought, well, I need to do my homework and find out what it's all about. And when I realised that the local businesses, the hotels, the restaurants, just about everyone else in the town was aghast at it and just didn't want to know about it and weren't supporting it. Normally those people would have been thinking, you know, there's this giant economic benefit, but 35,000 people confined in an area and then what happens afterwards after 10 o'clock at night in Coolangatta? It's not a big town. It, it, people were really, really concerned and horrified and when the police said only one policeman per every 750 people, I realised, wow, we can't support this. So I came out. I was the first one to come out and say, uh, we, we can't support this from World Surfing Reserve. I said, sure, there are other people in the town that were not supporting it too. But from World Surfing Reserve, I made a statement. And I said, rather than have it on the beach, we're not against the concert. We're not against people having a good time. And I love music too. But why don't you put it out to the Metricon? Because I cited the Woodstock example, when Woodstock happened, when Woodstock got planned, the first venue was, you know, it was booed down. They they didn't want to, uh, the people that saw Woodstock coming to their town, they didn't want it and they said, no way. So six, six weeks out of Woodstock being held, they looked for another venue and they found Jaeger's Farm and the rest is history. So I realised there and then, here's the example, try the Woodstock example, take it off the beach and take it to Metricon. And that's what they've done, which is this huge victory for us 
to show that the World Surfing Reserve does mean something with yeah. the beach and surf amenity, that we're protecting it from events that are way too big for that. We don't mind the Quicksilver Pro, National Surf Life Saving Titles, you know, beach cricket, you know, beach footy or what have you. But 35,000 people crammed into a cage on the beach, that's not really in our values and beliefs of what the World Surfing Reserve is about. So uh, I guess the next thing for us down the track is really trying to get legislation to protect with the state government and approved by council that that threat is no longer ever there and that we've always got that natural attraction, we've always got that natural asset. In the university they call it natural capital to maintain the natural capital and legislation to protect would do that. So we're hopeful that you know somewhere down the track we can do that. Yeah. Mm. That's amazing. I'm so stoked that um, you're in that position too, that we have people like you there that mm. can do these things and they can and can protect. Like this is uh, Gold Coast is a place that I've grown up and our beaches are amazing and the waves are amazing and to have that protected in a way or have people actually fighting to protect it, it's just, well, that's it. It's having the solutions rather yeah, that's than just right. having a pro- problem. Yeah, it's one thing, you know, criticising and, you know, opposing and saying no to everything you got to back it up. And this was the whole thing with the World Surfing Reserve. They wanted to build an ocean terminal at North Kira. So, you know, organising the rally and, you know, putting the placards up and saying no, that was the easy part. The hard part was to follow through with what's the plan? What's the follow through? Yeah. What, what's the plan that will ultimately protect us? And I said to everyone, if we go for a World Surfing Reserve, that will start. That will start the process. And people at first were thinking, oh, really? Can this really work? And I said, I'm convinced it can because there's great examples around the world of it. Um, And, you know, some people were really wary of it, thinking, oh, God, they're going to lock up the beaches. We won't be able to go out Kurumun Creek in our boat. We won't be able to, you know, there'll be restrictions and regulations. I said, no, 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 it's not like that at all. Everything's still there, but we're protecting it from any detrimental development that's stopping that and yeah. something like an ocean terminal was a glaring um you know glaring nightmare that would have just it would have undone all the work that we did to save kira and all the you know the sand pumping that we tried to put into balance um it would have just gone against the grain big time so you know we're really glad that that sort of you know went away in yeah. a way, and then the state government, of course, they opposed the one up north. So, uh, but you know, the mayor still you know, he he loves his cruise ship terminally. He wants to get one up north, right? But that's that's um in surface paradise at the oh the at, at the spit, yeah. yeah. But you know, there's a there's a master plan for the spit too to make it look even better and and a beautification and naturalisation of the spit and um you know I I, I really seriously can never see that sort of happening, what he's proposing. Although there are people that want it and there are people that are backing him that want it. But um, I just don't think that that's really in the scope. And, you know, to the Mayor's credit, when it looked like the Ocean Terminal idea could come back at North Kira, it sort of got floated by a few people as a speculator. But, you know, people were treating it seriously. Um, the mayor was the first one to say, oh, this is not within our plan for Gold Coast Beaches because that's a World Surfing Reserve. And that was the first time that he actually stood up and defended the World Surfing Reserve over an ocean terminal development. Oh, what a win. 
Well, it was. Yeah. It was. But, of course, people will say, well, he's only saying that because he wants one up north. That may be the case. But he's he's got to prove that that, that thing can work up there. And so far, it, it's it's still struggling. And, I, you know, good luck to you, Tom, but I really don't think that it's ever going to work. And the amount of money that has been spent on trying to come up with a proposal that's going to work, it's like flogging a dead horse. Yeah. You know, and I, I did say him once, um, and it was a great old saying that my mum had said to me, and I'd said to him on radio on time on Gold FM when I was doing an interview with the mayor and um, AJ, uh, Adrian Johnson, great, great announcer. And I said, uh, Dear Mr. Mayor, don't let your judgment spoil, don't let your emotions spoil your judgment. Yeah. Don't let your emotions get the better of your judgment. Yeah. How did he take that? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. So, what's that? Um, what's that? That website again for the global, oh, okay, yeah. So it's, conference. Yeah. So it's www.globalwaveconference2020.com.au. So if you go on that site, you can register to buy tickets. You can see the whole program. You can see what it's all about. It's uh, the 10th to the 14th of February, 2020, at Gold Coast Campus, Southern Cross University. And we've got a number of events, um, you know, surrounding that whole um, Global Wave Conference. But we've got a big fundraiser coming up on Sunday, the 1st of December. We're going to let you know about this, and that's going to be at The Collective, the restaurant at Palm Beach on Gold Coast Highway, Sunday, the 1st of December. Uh, Rabbit and Shane, uh, Rabbit Bartholomew, he's our patron of Gold Coast World Surfing Reserves. And Shane Horan is our Gold Coast World Surfing Reserve ambassador. And Ellie J. Brooks, she's one of the new young girls, really amazingly talented. Uh, she's a conservationist, she's a model, she's a competitor. She's um, our Global Wave Conference ambassador. They're going to be there at the Collective on Sunday, the 1st of December, to host uh, fundraising. We're going to have hula dancing. Uh, we're going to have live music. Um, we're going to use a Hawaiian theme. Oh, amazing, amazing. <laughs> yeah, uh, wear your loudest, brightest floral uh, skirts and shirts. Um, yeah, so we're going to go all out and, you know, try and raise some money because we're about three quarters of the way there on the budget at the moment. We've had some great support from the state government, from tourism, from sport and from environment and also uh, City of Gold Coast, the Southern End Councillors. But we just need a little bit more extra to get across the line so we've got it fully covered. But, um, yeah, we hope that anybody that uh, keep, keep looking on Gold Coast World Surfing Reserve, Facebook and Instagram, and also on our globalwaveconference.com.au, Global Wave Conference 2020. 2020. Don't forget the 2020 um, to see what we're doing. So exciting times coming up, Aaron. Yeah, thanks so much. Hey, um, we've been talking for just two hours and 15 minutes now. no so, way um, yeah it's been amazing <laughs> i love story time with you and and that's what i was saying um i'd love to have you on again um to re yeah to go back through those old stories because i know in that in that vault um there's so much there and there's it's just um for me like what i was telling you earlier it's just it re-sparked like when i was a kid listening to my dad tell the stories about the 70s 60s and and the 70s of surfing that is what inspired me to live this traveling lifestyle and to go out and seek this raw adventure and so to sit down with guys like you and and hear it it brings back these these 
these ideals that I have in my head of mm. that I want to go live out. So it's just um, it's amazing, and and you guys pave such a path for us. I say young guys now, but I'm not even young anymore. But um, no, no, that's right. You've got it all in front of you, Aaron, and um, you got that sense of adventure, and you're aware, and you've travelled wildly too. So you know all that experience. You know, there's no substitute for the experiences. The cliche, but it's so true, and you can use that as you you know start plotting and planning your life out and and how to make things work you know you've because you you you've got to come up with a plan that's going to work and uh, yeah i remember michael peterson when they interviewed him at bells after he won his third you know bells title down there and the interviewer said um do you have a strategy you know and peterson just looked at him going what do you think i'm dumb or something of course i've got a strategy but i'm not going to tell anyone yeah 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 exactly <laughs> all good strategy yeah alright Andrew thanks so much for your time thanks Aaron yeah thank you wonderful so if you like this episode please feel free to share it and leave a rating and if you have or know of anyone with a wild story please get in contact with me through my Instagram Aaron underscore Shanks or the website diariesofthewildones.com because I'd love to sit down over a beer or a coffee and hear it I do it like a double.